Radio Westeros, Episode 54, The Winds of Winter Primer, Part 1, In the North. Spoilers all books! Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and with me today is Yoke Boy. Yeah, hi there. And we're very, very excited about this episode, as it's the first part of a series that we've talked about for a long time, that we're calling the Winds of Winter Primer. We're going to focus on different point of view characters and parts of the map in each episode, with the objective being to recap and evaluate all the threads, theories and arcs for our listeners as we await the release of the Winds of Winter. And as a spoiler alert, we'll say that we'll be including analysis of all the released Winds of Winter preview chapters in this series. We will try largely to ignore the show, aside from those moments that we know came directly from George, but please realize that we have seen it, and whether we like it or not, it has influenced us as it has everyone. But we are a book-centered podcast, and in this series we'll try to focus solely on the text and the author's word. George himself has said that the show both did and didn't spoil the story, and there are many plot lines and characters that we'll be focusing on that fall way outside the show's scope. There remain a never-ending amount of reasons for book readers to get excited about the winds of winter, and there will undoubtedly be many fresh surprises buried in its pages. And now, for today's episode, we'll be starting the series with our focus on the North. A dance with dragons ended with many intriguing plotlines hanging in the balance, from Stannis at that icy crofter's village waiting to engage Roose Bolton's army, to the Caesaring of Jon Snow at the Wall. And so here's our rundown of the episode today. We're going to start with a recap of Theon and Asha's situation at the end of A Dance with Dragons, and then zoom in on the Theon 1 preview chapter from The Winds of Winter. Following that, we'll look at Stannis holed up near those icy lakes, waiting for the phrase. And to wrap up that location, we'll look at Stannis' future and what we can expect from him in The Winds of Winter. Of note, although we expect Winterfell to be an important setting in The Winds of Winter, We don't have a POV character there at the moment, so Winterfell itself and whatever is happening there remains off-page for now. And so next we'll move our focus to Castle Black, where a dance with dragons left Jon Snow and Melisandre. We also have a whole section lined up about the infamous pink letter which caused so much trouble for Jon, and we'll be investigating the various theories and giving you our take. Finally, we'll look at the situation at the wall going forward. There's a dead Jon Snow, a red witch, an angry giant, a scarred and shattered Night's Watch, a wildling army, and a very small group defending Queen Selyse. We'll have a long discussion about what could go down there. And one thing to note about Jon Snow is that you might notice a distinct lack of R plus L equals J discussion in this episode. And that's because, even though George has indicated that there might be revelations along those lines in The Winds of Winter, we expect them to come from point of view characters other than the ones we're looking at here, and to happen much later in the book as well. 
And if you want to brush up on George's comments regarding the Winds of Winter, the content of the released preview chapters and where to find them, and are looking for some kind of online resource, let us recommend the ultimate Winds of Winter resource from Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, a large blog entry put together by Brendan B. Fish with all the links you need in one place to get you straight. And before we begin today, let us thank our patrons. Radio Estros is supported by patrons, and our deepest thanks, as always, go to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Maltude, Pepper, Whitney, Kelly, Laura, Daniel, John Wagarian, and Sister Winter. Yeah, so thanks, guys. And if you're interested in becoming a patron, check out our campaign at patreon.com slash Radio Westeros to see what benefits you could gain by supporting us. Shoutouts, early access, and so on. And now it's time to get started with part one of our The Winds of Winter Primer. They emerged from the storm like a troop of wraiths, big men on small horses made even bigger by the bulky furs they wore. Swords rode on their hips, singing their soft steel song as they rattled in their scabbards. Asha saw a battle-axe strapped to one man's saddle, a warhammer on another's back. Shields they bore as well, but so obscured by snow and ice that the arms upon them could not be read. Theon's POV in A Dance with Dragons ended on a cliffhanger with him jumping from the walls of Winterfell with Jane Poole, having been aided in their escape by Mance Raider and his spearwives. Of the six spearwives, we know that at least two, Frenya and Holly, died during Theon's escape, and we'll be spending more time later in the episode talking about the fate of the rest. Before Dance with Dragons ends, however, we do get to see Theon once again through his sister Asha's point of view. Theon is now in the company of Tycho Nestoris, the Bravosi banker last seen at the Wall, two men of the Night's Watch, and six of Asha's men, including Christopher Botley, whom the banker had ransomed from Lady Sybil Glover at Deepwood Mott. Theon and Jane, we learn, had been rescued following their dramatic jump by Morsumber and his green boys, who had waited outside the walls of Winterfell, banging drums and blowing horns to the distraction of those inside. This time, the cliffhanger is real, and we see firsthand Asha's shock at recognising her brother, and their combined tale from A Dance with Dragons ends with this passage. A girl and an old man, thought Asha, as the two were dumped rudely in the snow before her. The girl was shivering violently, even in her furs. If she had not been so frightened, she might even have been pretty, though the tip of her nose was black with frostbite. The old man? No one would ever think him comely. She had seen scarecrows with more flesh. His face was a skull with skin, his hair bone white and filthy. And he stank. Just the sight of him filled Asher with revulsion. He raised his eyes. Sister, see, this time I knew you. Asher's heart skipped a beat. Theon? 
his lips skinned back in what might have been a grin. Half his teeth were gone, and half of those still left him were broken and splintered. Theon, he repeated. My name is Theon. You have to know your name. And so we're going to have a lightning round recap of the events of A Dance with Dragons for the two Greyjoy siblings before we move into an analysis of their Winds of Winter preview content and where we expect that to be taking each of them. A Dance with Dragons found Theon to have become the physically and emotionally tortured plaything of Ramsay Snow. Yeah, we're going to call him Snow because we can. Early on in the book, we see Theon at the Dreadfort, now called Reek, brought before Ramsay in the Great Hall by the two Walders, Big and Little, and presented to two men whom we eventually come to realise are none other than Arnulf Karstark, the Castellan of the Carhold, and Hotha Umber, joint Castellan of Last Hearth. Eventually, Reek is commissioned to effect the complete surrender of the ironborn force that had been left at Moat Kaelin by his uncle Victarion when he sailed back to the Iron Islands for the King's Moot. Along with Asha's men at Deepwood Mott and Dagmar Clefjaw's group at Torren Square, the small contingent at Moat Kaelin are the last of a sizable force that had been sent out by Balon Greyjoy under the command of his brother and two children to take the north during the chaos of the War of the Five Kings. Once Rikas Theon led the survivors of what was clearly a war of attrition led by the Cranagman against the Ironborn at Moat Kaelin into Ramsay's hands, where they were summarily executed, Roos Bolton was able to return to the north from the Riverlands and a new role for Theon was revealed. Bolton's plan to wed his newly legitimised son to Ned Stark's daughter in order to cement their possession of Winterfell could only succeed if a member of the girl's family publicly acknowledged the feigned girl as Arya Stark. And so Reek found himself in the public eye as Theon Greyjoy once again, as he was called upon to give his foster sister in marriage to Ramsay. The rest of Theon's A Dance with Dragons arc passes as a huiclo drama of opposing plots and conspiracies inside the walls of Winterfell as the snow falls and tensions mount. For a thorough coverage of those fascinating events, we direct you to our Theon in North Remembers episodes. In Theon's point of view, we see Jon Snow and Melisandre of Ashai's plotting from afar play out as Mance Raider is able to infiltrate the castle with the six spearwives that we saw him requesting in Melisandre's point of view chapter. The politics of the North during A Dance with Dragons is a fascinating topic that much and more has been written about. We ourselves have devoted many thousands of words to untangling the complexities of alliances and plots, and what actions are secretly benefiting which conspirators. So we can leave that topic as adequately covered for now, and focus on Theon's arc as A Dance with Dragons draws to a close. During Dance with Dragons, we witness Reek become Theon, reclaiming a shadow of his former identity, though his cognitive dissonance over his identity and allegiance, Stark or Greyjoy, Ironborn or Northman, continues to take center stage. His actions in saving Jane from her tormentor, who was once and potentially would again be his own tormentor, represent him firmly shedding Reek 
in favor of Theon, a triumph of the human spirit which has yet to play out completely since Theon still has many ghosts to confront and choices to make, which we see as the primary theme for his arc in the pages to come. Nonetheless, we see it as critical that Theon ended a dance with dragons as Theon, as we saw in that final line of Asher's last POV, the passage we heard earlier, my name is Theon, you have to know your name. And so when we get our first glimpse of him in The Winds of Winter, it's a chapter titled With His Name, Theon Won. And unlike his A Dance with Dragons arc, where several chapters pass before he's referred to by name, his full name is stated in the opening passage. While Theon and his sister Asha end up at the same place at the end of A Dance with Dragons, and thus presumably for the opening of The Winds of Winter, their paths couldn't have been more different. Since the last time they had met, Asha had returned to the Iron Islands, carrying her captives from Deepwood Mott, Lady Sybil Glover and her children, and then returned to Deepwood again following her defeat at the King's Moot by her uncle Euron. On her return, Asha is a fugitive who has been married by proxy and against her will to Euron's supporter Eric Anvilbreaker, and though many men still follow her, the bulk of the Iron Fleet remains under the control of her uncles, Victarion and Euron. It was at Deepwood, as she was considering her options, that Christopher Botley reminded her of a point of iron-born history that, to her mind, changed everything. Torgon Greyiron was the king's eldest son, but the king was old and Torgon restless, so it happened that when his father died, he was raiding along the Manda from his stronghold on Greyshield. His brothers sent no word to him, but instead quickly called a king's moot, thinking that one of them would be chosen to wear the driftwood crown. But the captains and the kings chose Urugon Goodbrother to rule instead. The first thing the new king did was command that all the sons of the old king be put to death, and so they were. After that, men called him Bad Brother, though in truth there'd been no kin of his. He ruled for almost two years. Asher remembered now. Torgon came home and said the king's moot was unlawful since he had not been there to make his claim. Bad Brother had proved to be as mean as he was cruel and had few friends left upon the isles. The priests denounced him, the lords rose against him and his own captains hacked him into pieces. Torgon the latecomer became the king and ruled for forty years. While Triss Botley fails to see the significance, to the reader the point is clear. Theon Greyjoy was the last king's eldest son who, absent from the king's moot, was denied a chance to press his claim. The precedent of history would seem to indicate that should Theon return to the islands, he would have the right to declare the king's moot unlawful and press his own claim. To Asha, this seems like a salvation, but to us, Knowing the state Theon is in, and his still unresolved identity crisis, we think this is a plot point that will play out as what Asha wants for Theon, rather than what he wants for himself. Theon's destiny, we think, lies elsewhere, as we'll be discussing shortly. Let's stick with Asher at Deepwood for the moment, though. 
As she discussed history with Triss Botley, her sentries caught five men attempting to sneak over Deepwood's wall to open the gates for a force of what one of the captives declared was thousands of men. Assuming the Northmen had banded together to retake Deepwood, Asher at first prepared to stand and fight, and then decided that she would lead her men through five leagues of the Wolfswood to the strand where their ships lay waiting. As the attacking army came at the north gate of Deepwood Mott with a battering ram, Asha led her men out the south gate, thinking to head south before looping west to the coast. In the dark forest, though, the going was slow, and the ironborn were soon overtaken by the northmen, who were much more at home in the woodlands than Asha or her men ever were. After a bloody fight, Asha and a small number of survivors were taken prisoner back to Deepwood, where she discovered who led this army that had come for her none other than Stannis Baratheon. This, then, is the coalition that we see talked about elsewhere in A Dance with Dragons, primarily Jon Snow's POV. Stannis had enlisted the Hill Clans and even gained the support of Alessane Mormont of Bear Island for his effort to first retake Deepwood and then move on to Winterfell. After capturing Asher, it says... His Grace King Stannis meant to carry her to Winterfell to display her there in chains for the Lords of the North to see, the Kraken's daughter bound and broken, proof of his power. Stannis's ragtag host of Northmen, clansmen, and Southern knights struggled through the mounting snowpack towards Winterfell from Deepwood, a distance of a hundred leagues which they had expected to cover in fifteen days. It was nearly two months later, however, when Tycho Nestoris, with his ironborn escort and Theon and Jane, came upon the army and camped at a crofter's village, three days' march from Winterfell, where they had been snowed in for more than a fortnight. During the march and encampment, Asher would be in the custody of Alessane Mormont and occasionally Sir Justin Massey. As things became increasingly difficult for the army, many of the Queen's men in the company would begin to look for possible sacrifices for their god. While a group of starving soldiers who resorted to cannibalism might suffice in the short term, Asher Greyjoy, unbeliever and daughter of a king, begins to seem like a viable candidate for many. And so Asher's final A Dance with Dragons chapter is called The Sacrifice, both for the cannibals who are burned and the fate that she is threatened with. And that chapter ends with Theon's arrival, and so the next time we see the Crofter's Village will be in Theon's first Winds of Winter chapter. This sample chapter was first made available to fans on George's website way back in 2011. After almost nine years, there are no guarantees that it hasn't been tweaked or edited. But for what it's worth, today we're going to do a quick recap of the chapter as we know it and the insight we gained from it before we offer a bit of speculation on what else the Winds of Winter will bring for Theon, Stannis, and Jane Poole, among others. And we'll be getting back to Asha as well in a later segment. Theon Greyjoy opened his eyes. His shoulders were on fire and he could not move his hands. For half a heartbeat, he feared he was back in his old cell under the Dreadfort, that the jumble of memories inside his head was no more than the residue of some fever dream. 
I was asleep, he realized, that or passed out from the pain. When he tried to move, he swung from side to side, his back scraping against stone. He was hanging from a wall inside a tower, his wrists chained to a pair of rusted iron rings. After his dramatic flight from Winterfell and unexpected appearance in Stannis' camp at the end of A Dance with Dragons, the Winds of Winter will apparently find Theon a prisoner once again, this time in Stannis' own tower, charged with being a turncloak and a kinslayer. The reader knows he's guilty of the first, but not the latter, and not of the destruction of Winterfell either. But the Northmen in Stannis' army do not, and for now, the traumatically scarred Theon does not seem inclined to tell the true tale of Ramsay's heinous crimes. To begin with, Stannis is concluding his meeting with Tychio Nestorius of the Iron Bank. He has apparently reached an agreement for a loan which will not only give him the funds he needs to hire sellswords, but will also assume the principal owed by Robert and Joffrey, the entire debt of the Crown of the Seven Kingdoms. And, anticipating the coming engagement with the Bolton forces, we learn that Stannis intends for Nestorius to start back to the Wall that very day, in the company of the two Black Brothers John had sent with him, as well as Justin Massey, Six Knights, Ellison Mormont, and Arya Stark. We also get to see Theon's memories of what happened to him and Jane after they leapt from the wall at Winterfell, landing in a deep snowdrift 40 feet below the castle's 80-foot-high outer wall. They were immediately picked up by Moore's Umber, and not a moment too soon, as at that moment one of Crowfood's boys shouted that the portcullis of the main gate was being raised. Rewinding to Theon's last A Dance with Dragons chapter, we saw Roose order Wyman Manderley to assemble his men and make ready to ride out by the east gate, and Hostine Frey to do the same at the main gate. So we know this will be Costine Frey and his Riverlanders. It says that Crowfoot Umber had grinned when he heard that men were issuing from Winterfell, and later we learn why. The horn blowing and drumming had indeed been a ploy to goad Roose Bolton to an attack, and as they waited for the result, Umber had set his green boys to digging pits outside the gate. When the phrase marched out, it says, The snow had covered up the pits, so they rode right into them. Aenys broke his neck, I heard, but Sir Hostine only lost a horse, more's the pity. He'll be angry now. So, Aenys Frey is dead and Hostine is angry. Two facts which please Stannis, who says, Angry foes do not concern me. Anger makes men stupid, and Hostine Frey was stupid to begin with. If half of what I have heard of him is true, let him come. So, Stannis anticipates the arrival of the phrase, and Theon tells him that the Manderleys will be not far behind. Stannis has nothing but contempt for Lord Wyman, who, as he sees it, executed Davos Seaworth and rejected Stannis' offer of alliance. He wonders how they brought themselves to this alliance with the architects of the Red Wedding, and Theon warns that they won't join their strengths, but the two groups will come separately. The North remembers, he says, the Red Wedding... Lady Hornwood's Fingers, the Sack of Winterfell, Deepwood Ma, and Torrin Square, they remember all of it. 
The subtext is that Wyman Manderley is plotting against the Boltons and the phrase, though Theon's failure to defend himself vigorously from the charge of kinslaying means Stannis does not have all of the information. Theon, it appears, is still too psychologically shattered to speak the truth about Ramsay, though he does inform Stannis of the size of Bolton's army and the situation inside the walls. He also tries to warn Stannis about Ramsay. His terror when he thinks that Ramsay may be following the phrase in the Manderleys is palpable, and he tells Stannis, Lord Ramsay is the one your grace should fear. So frightened is Theon of Ramsay finding him that he confesses then and there to having slain Bran and Rickon and urges Stannis to put him to death before Ramsay arrives. It's worth noting that without a point of view inside Winterfell, our knowledge of what the Boltons are up to is now fairly limited and Theon's conviction that Ramsay is coming for the moment reads like the raving of a disturbed mind rather than any specific intelligence. Also, it's worth noting, because our specific knowledge of Ramsay's actions is so limited, our further coverage of him will be split into two parts. The upcoming discussion of what might happen to Stannis, and, when we get to John, our thoughts on the so-called pink letter. During this chapter, we also get to see a secret alliance unravel, the foundations of which had been laid in Theon's first chapter, In a Dance with Dragons, when we saw Arnulf Karstark and Crowfood Umber meeting with Ramsay. Stannis has a maester brought before him, who turns out to be Maester Tybald from the Dreadfort. Tybald is accompanied by three knights and two ravens in cages. Though Tybald claims to be assisting Arnulf Karstark, he clearly cannot give a satisfactory explanation for his presence in the camp, and when it's revealed that these ravens were trained to fly to Winterfell and that he was also in possession of an empty raven cage, he pisses himself in fear. And now we get the explanation for the parchment that Maester Rodri had delivered to Roose Bolton just before he ordered the Freys and Manderleys to march in that final Theon chapter in A Dance with Dragons. It was a map sent by Tybalt, who now knows the noose is tightening on the secret alliance he's been aiding. After the maester is taken away in custody, the Karstarks are brought in. Now's a good time to remind ourselves that the Karstark plot was uncovered by Jon Snow, thanks to Alice Karstark's arrival at the Wall seeking asylum. She revealed her great-uncle's false allegiance to Stannis, and John sent a message to him at Deepwood Mott, which had arrived at the Crofter's village with Tycho Nestoris and his Night's Watch escort. Thanks to her bravery, Theon is able to see Stannis reveal his knowledge to Arnolf Karstark, his son, and three of his grandsons. And Theon recognises Arnolf and thinks he's a poor excuse for a man. Remember that this particular branch of the Karstark family is seeking to profit from the deaths of not only the late Lord Rickard, but the deaths of his three sons whom Theon had fought beside in Rob's company, one of whom was still a Lannister captive whose death they were actively trying to bring about through their false alliance with Stannis. Theon may not know, but Stannis surely will, that they also sought to forcibly marry their cousin Alice to Arnolf's son Cregan, who is presently in custody at the Wall. 
and within short order, the Karstarks in Stannis' camp were also all in custody, the family members sentenced to death and their levy held under guard in the long hall. When Richard Hawpe reports on the situation, he notes that the rest of the camp was growing anxious. And no wonder. As well as news of the Karstark betrayal, Theon's arrival in the camp had also marked the arrival of Tycho Nestorius and Arya Stark. And a number of the Ironborn fighters, the Northmen, had so recently fought and left as prisoners of Deepwood Mott. Uncertainty was the order of the day, and Sir Richard let Stannis know that he will have to speak to the men soon. One of the greatest uncertainties, besides the fate of the Karstarks, would be what was to be done with Theon and Arya. Stannis quickly resolved that Arya would go to the Wall with Ali Mormont and Justin Massey, notably removing Asha's chief guardians and supporters in the camp. But the clan leaders present were clearly concerned that justice be carried out swiftly to Theon, the turncloak and presumed kinslayer of the Ned's sons, was a dead man walking in their eyes. That's not to say that Stannis didn't have the same opinion, just that he intended to get some use out of Theon before his inevitable execution. First and foremost, he desired intelligence of the situation inside Winterfell, which Theon gave to him to a point. Though he can recite the size and composition of the Bolton army, when it came to Ramsay himself, Theon proved himself to be mostly only capable of terrified rantings. And since the main justification for the alliance of Stannis and the Hill Clans was the rescue of the Ned's little girl, with the departure of that girl for the safety of her half-brother's custody at the Wall, the question must be asked how the coalition would fare in the upcoming confrontation with Bruce Bolton's allies, something Stannis must surely be aware of. In the face of his uncertain alliances in the North, and with the benefit of his new agreement with the Iron Bank, Stannis has decided that Sir Justin will be sent to Bravos, seeking to hire sellswords for his cause. Stannis instructs Justin, Seek for the Golden Company in the disputed lands, if need be, but first hire as many swords as you can find in Bravos and send them to me by way of Eastwatch. Archers as well, we need more bows. Stannis also very carefully instructs Justin to bring 20,000 cell swords and carry on the fight to win the Iron Throne, no matter what even in the event that Sir Justin hears of Stannis's own death. If that happens, he says, you will avenge my death and seat my daughter on the Iron Throne, or die in the attempt. Stannis also promises to consider Justin's request for Asha Greyjoy's hand upon his return. She would remain the king's prisoner in the meantime, though. Although exactly what kind of prisoner Asher is, is up for debate, since not long after the king's meeting with Sir Justin, Asher appeared before him, accompanied by Carl the Maid and Christopher Botley, for all the world looking like a personal guard. Yeah, having traded Ali Mormont and Justin Massey for six of her own men, perhaps we shouldn't be too concerned for Asha. She'd come to Stannis not, she assured him, to bargain for her brother's life, though she did make the offer. 
but understanding that he was marked for death, her goal seemed to be to prevent him from becoming a sacrifice to R'hllor. The sample chapter ends with her challenge to Stannis to deliver northern justice to her brother. Then do the deed yourself, your grace. Take him out across the lake to the islet where the weirwood grows and strike his head off with that sorcerous sword you bear. That is how Eddard Stark would have done it. Theon slew Lord Eddard's sons. Give him to Lord Eddard's gods, the old gods of the north. Give him to the tree. The two ravens from the Dreadfort are still present for this request, and while one screams, The tree, the tree, the other said only, Theon, Theon, Theon. And that's the last we know for sure about this trio of major characters in The Winds of Winter. But there's plenty of speculating we can do, educated guesswork based on the evidence in this and other chapters. The first thing we'd like to consider is Sir Justin's mission to Bravos. He's been instructed to hire sellswords, though as we know the Golden Company won't be found in the disputed lands or anywhere else in Essos. Of the other known sellsword companies that we know still exist or existed within the time frame of the novels, there are presently only three who are not under contract in Slaver's Bay. The Gallant Men are a company known to have fought in the disputed lands for both Lys and Tyrosh. Sir Osmond Kettleblack claims to have fought with them. The Iron Shields and the Maiden's Men, the latter having a fairly unsavoury reputation, are two companies that the Tattered Prince of the Windblown is known to have been a member of. Any of these three, if they still exist, might be available for Sir Justin to hire. Of course, he might find a company that has yet to be mentioned, though to find 20,000 men, as Stannis requested, with all of the larger companies currently engaged, might just be a bit of a challenge. What will be interesting is Sir Justin's upcoming presence in Braavos, which raises the possibility of an intersection with the real Arya Stark. We've said in the past that it wouldn't surprise us if Jane Poole is also sent to Braavos, which would lead to yet another potential intersection with the real Arya. In A Dance with Dragons, Jon Snow believed Arya had arrived at the Wall. It turned out to be Alice Karstark, but before realizing this, Jon thinks his sister, quote, won't be safe, and that the wall was no place for a woman, much less a girl of noble birth. His first idea to keep the girl safe was to send her to Bravos with the Iron Bank representative. It says she could return to Bravos with Taicho Nostoris. Now, in this chapter, Stannis sends the girl, they all presume to be the real Aya, to the wall with Sir Justin and Taicho. Take the Stark girl with you. Deliver her to Lord Commander Snow on your way to Eastwatch. However, in the aftermath of John's stabbing, it's highly likely the Wall will be a more dangerous place than ever for a girl of noble birth. Alison Mormont is accompanying Jane, and it seems very unlikely that she'll abandon the young girl, whom she thinks is Arya Stark, in a dangerous situation. The most logical choice to make which might have already been foreshadowed by John's thoughts on what to do with the girl he thought was Arya, is to send her to Bravos, and, notably, with John presumably at least temporarily out of commission, 
no one presently at Castle Black will be able to definitively identify Jane Poole as herself and not Arya. And speaking of Jane's imminent arrival at the Wall, now is a good time to mention that we find her to be an interesting candidate for the girl in grey from Melisandre's vision in A Dance with Dragons. I have seen your sister in my fires fleeing from this marriage they have made for her, coming here to you, a girl in grey on a dying horse. I have seen it plain as day. It has not happened yet, but it will. With these words, Melisandre reassured John that his sister Arya would arrive at Castle Black, fleeing from her marriage to Ramsay Snow. Significantly, this first description of the vision makes it clear that the girl she saw was dressed in grey. Melisandre feels enormous pressure to convince John of the truth of her vision, thinking, The girl, I must find the girl again, the girl in grey on the dying horse. John Snow would expect that of her, and soon. It would not be enough to say the girl was fleeing. He would want more. He would want the when and the where, and she did not have that for him. She had seen the girl only once. A girl as grey as ash, and even as I watched, she crumbled and blew away. When she discusses her plans with Mance Raider, disguised as Rattleshirt, he asks where the girl is to be found, and we get this exchange. I saw water deep and blue and still with a thin coat of ice just forming on it. It seemed to go on and on forever. Long Lake, what else did you see around this girl? Hills, fields, trees, a deer wants stones. She is staying well away from villages. When she can, she rides along the bed of little streams to throw hunters off her trail. He frowned. That will make it difficult. She was coming north, you said. Was the lake to her east or to her west? Melisandre closed her eyes, remembering. West. She's not coming up the King's Road, then. Clever girl. There are fewer watchers on the other side, and more cover. We discussed this theory in our very first episode, and elsewhere since, and you can find a link to the written version of it on our website. But essentially, as we see it, there are four major clues in the vision. The grey clothes, the dying horse, a girl fleeing from a marriage, and Long Lake. Jane Poole is fleeing a marriage and is dressed in grey, remembering that she had exchanged clothes with the spearwife squirrel, whose dress was noted to be drab grey roughspun. Further, the horses in Stannis' camp are noted on numerous occasions to be starving, and a look at the map of the north shows that the route to Castle Black from the Crofter's village might indeed take one near the west bank of Long Lake. On the other hand, Alice Carstark, who we see as a red herring, was only ever noted to be dressed in black and arrived at Castle Black directly from the car hold, many leagues from Long Lake. Alice fits only two of the major clues then, while Jane potentially fits them all, the only candidate about whom we think this can be said. As for Melisandre's thoughts about the girl blowing away, we need look no further than John's thoughts of what he would do with his sister if she indeed turned up at the wall. The best solution he could see would mean dispatching her to Eastwatch and asking Cotter Pike to put her on a ship to some place across the sea, beyond the reach of all these quarrelsome kings. If Jane is placed on a ship bound for Bravos, as John had considered, she would indeed be blown away across the stormy narrow sea, 
As we've noted, the significance of Jane being the grey girl is that John's conclusion that Alice Carstark was the girl from the vision led him to mistrust Melisandre's advice. Daggers in the dark, I know you will forgive my doubts, my lady. A grey girl on a dying horse fleeing from a marriage, that was what you said. Mal had cautioned John repeatedly about the daggers in the dark and the skulls around him, and she also warned him to keep Ghost close. But John's disillusionment after her supposed mistake with Alice Carstark led him to ignore her advice. One might argue that this lapse led directly to his fate at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Had John more faith in her words, it's possible that daggers in the dark might have been avoided and we'll have much more on that later. For now, let's keep our focus on what might happen with Theon, Asher, and Stannis. In our next segments, we'll talk a lot about the upcoming battle and the future of all three of these characters. And to start, we'll be offering some insight on this from a surprising bit of detective work that occurred in the fandom just a few years ago. We hold the ground, and that I mean to turn to our advantage. Back in 2014, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver broadcast brief footage of George R.R. Martin working on The Winds of Winter in his home studio. But it wasn't until 2017 that some keen-eyed fans realized that with some enlargements and photo manipulation and possibly an actual detective's magnifying glass, the words on George's screen would become semi-legible. Eventually, fans were able to decipher most of the passage, and so major spoilers ahead if you don't want to know what this fragment of an Asher POV might tell us. We feel it's very important to note that this was a draft on George's computer that was really never meant to be publicly shared. Every bit of what was revealed through this exercise is subject to change or exclusion by the author. And having said all that, this passage, now known as the Asha Fragment, reads like this. Daughter of the Lord Reaper of Pike. Blank, Asha thought as she took a blank at the land. The leader of the enemy wore silvered plate and mail, inlaid with detail of lapis lazuli. The crest of his helm was tall, fashioned in the shape of the twin towers of House Frey. Before him rode three banner-bearers. One bore the stag and lion standard of King Tommen, another the twin towers of House Frey. The third brandished a bloody head impaled upon the point of a tall spear. An old man's head it was, white-bearded and one-eyed. The spear was blank with a pale wood, almost white. Blank along its upper shaft had blank, dark and red. Crowfood umber, Asha knew. The old Northman had fought to his death, it seemed. Perhaps the foe had thought the sight of the severed head would take the heart of the blank. They rushed together. And that's the end. And so the Asher fragment seems likely to be 
her first or second POV chapter in The Winds of Winter and sheds at least some light on the early stages of what's become known in the fandom as the Battle of Ice. Where the contingent of Freys who rode out from Winterfell will face off against Stannis' men. Keeping in mind that the Crofters' village is three days' march from Winterfell and that the Theon chapter we just discussed takes place the morning after his arrival in the camp, and that we'll learn that the phrase had set out from Winterfell's main gate pretty much on his and Jane's heels, this chapter almost certainly takes place very soon after Theon won. The Battle of Ice, at one time intended to come at the end of A Dance with Dragons, was always expected to be seen by more than one point of view. And in the last line of this passage, it seems we get confirmation that Asha will be one of them. The major reveal in the passage is that, as the Freys approach, led by a man who is almost certainly Hostine Frey, Asha sees the head of a white-bearded old man upon a spear. She identifies the man as Moore's Crowfoodumber, last seen camped outside Winterfell. He had intercepted Theon and Jane Poole following their leap from the wall and sent the pair on to Stannis' camp with Tycho Nestoris and his escort. Stannis believes Morris's timely intervention saved the pair from being recaptured by Ramsay. He says to Theon, You fell. Umber saved her. If Morris Crowfoot and his men had not been outside the castle, Bolton would have had the both of you back in moments. As we said, Moores and his party of green boys had been creating confusion outside Winterfell by blowing horns and bashing drums, hoping to draw the Bolton host outside. And we know from Theon's sample chapter that they had succeeded in causing the death of Aenys Frey when the Freys marched forth, enraging his half-brother Sir Hostine. While Crowfood's contribution to the effort to draw the Boltons out cannot be overstated, it seems confirmed by the Asher fragment that Umber will meet his end early in the Winds of Winter. Another note about the timeline, and food for thought mostly at this point, is that in Theon 1, Stannis ordered the party of Justin Massey, Tycho Nestoris, and Jane Poole and their escort to depart immediately, before midday on that very day. Given that the party that arrived the day before with Tycho, Theon, and company had only as much of a head start as their northern mounts could gain over the southern horses likely ridden by the phrase, we cannot be absolutely certain that the entire party heading to the Wall got away safely. Yeah, it's true that the close proximity of the enemy army has to leave some doubt there, and in spite of the fact that we think most of them will ultimately reach the Wall, there's plenty of room to speculate about some drama occurring off-page with that group. For that matter, and as we've mentioned and we'll discuss again in an upcoming section, the timeline indicates that the situation at the wall could be extremely unstable when they do arrive. Expect things to not go exactly as planned here. Also of note in the Asha passage, we think, is the apparent use of a weirwood spear to carry the old man's head. The only other weirwood spear we've seen so far belonged to Steer, the Magnar of Then. He had the spear with him when he died during the wildling attack on Castle Black, and its whereabouts are now unknown. 
We don't see any way this could be the same weapon, but it's clearly a northern weapon. And so we think it's very likely that it's Crowfood's own spear being used as a mockery of him and northern custom by the southern phrase. On a meta level, fans were worried that this screenshot proved that George was still writing the early parts of the Battle of Ice in 2014. And while this could be the case, we have nothing to prove that he didn't just open up a random page or one that he'd been editing for this John Oliver sketch. Overall, the fragment, which could be a page from the beginning, middle or end of a chapter for all we know, provided a small snack for the fans who were willing to go to any length to sate their hunger and some tantalising pieces of information, but not much in the way of plot advancement. Getting back to the battle itself, while at Deepwood Mott, Stannis had declared in his war council, we will march and we will free Winterfell or die in the attempt. Typical of Stannis, he put himself and his men in an all-or-nothing situation. Of note, his army had by this time grown to over 5,000 men, while in Theon 1, Theon informs Stannis that the Boltons have more men than he does, maybe 6,000, though critically, Roose will only commit about half of them to the current engagement. Of course, Stannis's army has been depleted and weakened by the hardships of the march from Deepwood and their long encampment at the Crofter's village. In Asha's point of view, it says this about the condition of their army. Stannis Baratheon's host sat snowbound and unmoving, walled in by ice and snow, starving. Nonetheless, it does seem likely that Stannis' army will outnumber the force Bolton has sent out, especially if we take into account the likelihood that the Mandalees are not going to actually fight alongside the Freys. When Stannis learns that Roose Bolton has sent half his force out to engage him, he judges this as a stroke of luck, saying, Bolton has blundered. All he had to do was sit inside his castle whilst we starved. Instead, he has sent some portion of his strength forth to give us battle. And this is where all credit must be given, as we mentioned, to Crowfood Umber, whose psychological tactics succeeded in creating tension and ultimately drawing the enemy forth. And while being snowed in at the Crofter's village might have initially seemed like a piece of ill luck, Stannis has clearly assessed the environment. We hold the ground, and that I mean to turn to our advantage, he says to Theon. So there's a newfound hope in Stannis' demeanour at this stage, and we must remember that he is an experienced commander and military tactician. Surely Stannis is seeking ways to fortify the village to gain an advantage over Bolton's fresher men. And many readers have noticed that there might be something very specific to his plan. Note how Stannis promises they will take advantage of the ground. Theon mocks this as he sees no high ground or natural defences to support the usual military tactics. But what we know about the village surroundings is that it's set between two frozen lakes. And so the fandom wonders if we're about to see a major real-world historical parallel unfold. Prince Alexander Nevsky was the military leader of Novgorod, Vladimir and Kiev during the 13th century, a highly tumultuous and complex time during Kievan Rus's history. 
1242, facing an invasion by the Teutonic Knights of Germany and Estonia, the 20-year-old prince and commander decided he would choose the battleground. He lured the crusaders onto the frozen Lake Pipus and executed a ferocious assault that led to the knights and their heavily armored horses becoming exhausted from fighting on such unusual and slippery terrain. Though historians now assert this next part was a later fabrication, for many years popular legend claimed that when the Teutonic Knights tried to retreat, they strayed onto thin ice, which soon collapsed under their weight and led to men and their horses drowning in the icy waters. Now we all know how much George loves a good historical legend, and if a parallel to the Nevsky legend is what George is planning, then the groundwork has certainly been done here. Very early in the journey to the village, we see a cart break through the ice on a pond. It says the baggage train crossed a rippling expanse of waist-high snowdrifts that concealed a frozen pond. When the hidden ice cracked beneath the weight of the wagons, three teamsters and four horses were swallowed up by the freezing water, along with two of the men who tried to rescue them. So we have a precedent, plus the lakes near the village are significantly larger than the ponds and so could be used as a weapon on a grander scale. There are also islands amidst the lakes, covered with trees, so people wonder, could Stannis use these islands as part of the ruse? Could the enemy be tempted onto the lakes unknowingly while Stannis' men on the islands create the illusion of solid ground or that the ice is safe? Perhaps the clansmen with their bear paws and light-fitted garrons could easily traverse the ice to lay the trap, while the remnants of Stannis' heavy horse could cut off their retreat. And once Stannis had the enemy trapped on the lake, he could count on nature doing the rest. Soon after the arrival at the village, we see numerous references to the ice being drilled for fishing. There are fish in those lakes, Hawk told the king. We'll cut holes in the ice. The Northmen know how it's done. And then we find out that the ice cutting has begun. They had spent most of it out on the ice, shivering beside a pair of holes they'd cut in the smaller of the frozen lakes, with fishing lines clutched in mitten-clumsy hands. And later still... We have this from one of the Northmen. I know them lakes. You've been on them like maggots on a corpse. Hundreds of you. Cut so many holes in the ice, it's like bloody wonder more haven't fallen through. Out by the island, there's places look like a cheese the rats have been at. So the ice is already weakened. Imagine a host of heavy horses riding over the top, and you'll see why Nevsky is such an intriguing parallel. Add to this notion that the Mandalees were commanded by Roose Bolton to depart by Winterfell's East Gate separately from the Freys, and we can assume they will be behind them. We've already mentioned that some kind of showdown between the two groups seems inevitable, and so, barring a disaster, such as the Mandalees falling through the ice by accident, Fans see Stannis masterminding a victory here. And some readers have taken the Ice Lake theory further. Redditor Cantus thinks that Stannis Baratheon, a man who does historically command from the rear, 
We'll stand atop the watchtower at the village. When the time is ripe and the frays are on the ice, Cantus imagines that Stannis will draw his bright and shiny sword Lightbringer to signal his catapults to break the ice. This popular idea is called the Night Lamp Theory. And although the specifics and details might be difficult to predict, many readers are confident that there will be heavily armoured frays at the bottom of those lakes early in the winds of winter. Whether Stannis demolishes the entire Frey contingent so easily remains to be seen, and we should remember that George never makes things too easy for his major characters. Will all the Freys drown? What will happen to the Mandalees? What will be the role of the Northern clans? How many of Stannis's men will survive the battle? Even when readers think they know what is about to happen, there are always twists and many questions to be answered. And assuming Stannis does score some kind of victory against the Freys here, he will undoubtedly want to begin his march on Winterfell, where the rest of his enemies will be sitting behind thick walls and ramparts. But before we go on to speculate further about Stannis' future, let's conclude this section by talking about some other things that might happen during or after the engagement at the Crofter's Village, and where things could be going for Asha and Theon. In our North Remembers episode, our most downloaded episode ever for what it's worth, we talked about some potential wild cards in this situation. As we said earlier, we definitely encourage you to go back and give that episode a listen if you're looking for a deep dive on the military and political situation in the North. But one thing we'll remind you of here is that in A Dance with Dragons, Wyman Manderley has told Davos that he could field more heavy horse than any lord in the North, that he'd been raising men in a white harbour, and that all of the petty lords from the lands east of the White Knife from Widow's Watch and Ramsgate to the Sheep's Head Hills and the headwaters of the Broken Branch, would follow him. That is a significant portion of the North, and it's estimated that his army would at least equal, if not exceed, Bolton's strength. In addition, in A Dance with Dragons, when Davos met with Lord Wyman, he was accompanied by Robert Glover, husband to Lady Sybil from Deepwood Mott, But when Lord Wyman travelled to Winterfell, he brought with him only 300 men, including a 100 knights, at least some of whom are described as greybeards, and there was no sign of Robert Glover. And so we've wondered if the mysteriously missing Robert Glover and Lord Manderley's army might come back into the story at an opportune moment. Besides a veritable Chekhov's army that could be lurking in the snow somewhere nearby, there's also Robert Glover's brother, Galbert. He and Mage Mormont were last known to be heading into the Neck to find Howland Reed. While it might be too early for them to make their reappearance, enough time has passed that really anything is possible at this point. What we can be sure of, and Theon assures Stannis of in his sample chapter, is that the North does remember, and all things considered, their time for vengeance is growing near. As for Asha and Theon, we'll point out a few facts of their situation as the battle begins before we speculate from there. Both are still Stannis' prisoners, though Asha has had her chains removed and now has a personal guard of six of her most loyal Ironborn, 
Triss Botley, Carl the Maid, Rogon, Grimtongue, Fingers, and Rook, men ransomed from Lady Glover at Deepwood by Tycho Nestoris, and now ostensibly sworn to fight for Stannis. Theon is marked for death, but at the end of his sample chapter, Asher is seen pleading for Stannis to execute him personally in front of a weirwood tree, essentially challenging the king to deliver northern justice for a northern crime. Given the timing we've discussed, it's unlikely any decisions have been taken before the battle was joined, though Stannis may well have met with Big Bucket Wool and Artos Flint as they were waiting for him as the chapter ended. Since we have to have at least one of them around to act as a point of view for the battle and its aftermath, we think that's likely to remain Asha. We know that ultimately her driving ambition will be to return to the Iron Islands and retake them from her uncle. We also know that she might have some designs on using the precedent of Torgon Latecomer to invalidate the king's moot. How she'll execute those plans is still up for debate, unless her six men are able to facilitate her escape. But Asher also has unfinished business in the north. Back in A Dance with Dragons, she had reminded Stannis about the remaining ironborn under Dagmar Clefjaw at Torrens Square, and her potential usefulness in settling that matter. And Stannis, in Theon's chapter, has just promised Justin Massey that he can pursue a match with her once he returns from Bravos, And we can't forget her husband, the ancient Eric Ironmaker, Euron Steward of the Iron Islands. She's unlikely to want to return to the islands until she is freed from his potential embrace. And so, in the short term, we think she'll be staying with Stannis. Theon is another matter. We really have to emphasize that Asha's ideas about Torgon Latecomer are her own. Theon himself has no such ambition. All of that has been stripped out of him by Ramsay. Back inside Winterfell, watching the snowfall, Theon had thought this. The world is gone. King's Landing, River Run, Pike and the Iron Islands, all the Seven Kingdoms, every place that he had ever known, every place that he had ever read about or dreamed of, all gone. Only Winterfell remained. We think that this is a strong indicator that Theon's destiny is tied to Winterfell and the Starks. We've discussed in our Theon episode that his path to redemption lies with resolving his identity crisis. Asher might see some path to redemption for him in the story of a legendary king from the Iron Islands of their birth, But there's also another king from Westeros history that Theon could be identified with. And this one's a Stark. Theon Stark, known as the Hungry Wolf, whom Theon considers my namesake. Remember that the main thrust of Theon's arc has been his identification, for good or ill, with the Stark family. While it's true that he affirmed his ironborn identity many times over during A Dance with Dragons, he also thinks how he's a Stark at last during Jane's sham wedding to Ramsay and admits to Lady Dustin in the crypts just how much he always wanted to be a Stark. We noted that King Theon Stark was a mariner who was responsible for driving the ironborn from the north. And that since Theon Greyjoy is responsible for the Northmen retaking Moat Kaling from Victarion's men, 
in a manner of speaking, he's already done something similar. Theon Stark was also known for making common cause with the Boltons, and while that isn't exactly the case with Theon Greyjoy, it certainly could be the way the history books view it. But in order to reach a satisfactory resolution to his identity crisis, Theon will have to make peace with both his Ironborn family and the Starks. Given Ash's reaction to him, her knowledge of what he's been through, and her pleading for him to Stannis, we think that part will be relatively easy, even if he does end up disappointing her in the matter of being the latecomer. But how will he even live to make amends with the Starks when at the moment he won't even deny the charge of murdering his foster brothers? But one very important thing to remember is Davos Seaworth's secret mission to retrieve Rickon Stark. We'll discuss this in greater detail in another episode, but as it relates to Theon, Davos's return will be the one thing that can and will fully exonerate him from that particular charge. So having been cleared of that, narratively speaking, what remains will be for Theon to prove his loyalty to the Starks, to earn his redemption somehow, and finally to forgive himself. One thing we've suggested has to be considered is Theon's willingness, way back in A Storm of Swords and just before the sack of Winterfell by Ramsay Snow, to join the Night's Watch. Remember this? A brother of the Night's Watch, it meant no crown, no sons, no wife, but it meant life, a life with honor. A black cloak can't be turned. I'd be as good as any man. Since that was one of his final thoughts as Theon Greyjoy, we think this option is worth considering. Could Theon somehow ask to take the black and be granted the opportunity to recreate himself as a man of the Night's Watch? Since the Black Brothers leave their past and their names behind, this type of clean slate might be exactly what a character in the throes of an identity crisis needs. It's also made clear many times over that Theon Greyjoy is an exceptional archer, and we hear repeatedly about the value of a good archer to the Watch. We said in our Theon episode that we believe he could have at least one more arrow shot left in him. While Ramsay has separated him from a few fingers and toes, it's possible he's left just enough to still be an effective archer. But even if that is beyond him, it's noted on multiple occasions that he can still wield the knife. And as we've noted elsewhere, it seems that besides being a Stark, Theon yearns for nothing more than to be a hero. We also want to point out that Theon's prayers in front of the Winterfell Heart Tree, which have almost certainly been observed by Bran, will likely serve to link those two together even further. Theon has prayed to the Old Gods for mercy, and remembering that while the mercy of the North is that of swift judgment and a clean death, we also think that if any gods will make a fair and true judgment, it will be the gods of the trees. And also remember Theon's conviction from A Dance with Dragons that the gods are not done with me. 
Bran's identification with the trees, the embodiment of the old gods of the North, might be a hint that Theon's arc is heading towards an ending closely tied to Bran, perhaps some kind of self-sacrifice that might redeem him in the eyes of gods and men, while confirming at last his connection with House Stark. So, one way or another, we think Theon's destiny will be to do something heroic while standing with House Stark, and imagine the potential heroism of a well-placed dragonglass-tipped arrow or knife. As we said in our Theon episode, we really don't think that George will have built up this complex and tortured character with his journey through identity crisis and physical and emotional torment for him to meet an ignominious ending as a sacrifice to a foreign god who holds no sway in the land Theon has identified with. And now, speaking of Red Valor... In our next section, we'll be taking a look at what might happen to Stannis Baratheon after the Battle of Ice, and what role the Red God will play in his fate. As Orhai tempered Lightbringer with the heart's blood of his own beloved wife, if a man with a thousand cows gives one to God, that is nothing but a man who offers the only cow he owns? In drama, a coup de théâtre is defined as a sudden or unexpected event pulled off by the author or one of the players, often something staged specifically for dramatic effect. Over the course of A Song of Ice and Fire, George has proved himself to be adept at the use of this device. Think Ned's Head and The Red Wedding. And we're going to be suggesting what just might be the next major coup de théâtre in the series. But before we go ahead and talk about Stannis' future in The Winds of Winter, we want to give a spoiler warning. In Game of Thrones Season 5, Episode 9, there were big moments for Stannis. As most of you know, we don't like to lean on the show at all, but in the After the Episode segment, the showrunners insinuated that at least some of what they had presented came from George himself. This blurred the lines between the canons as the word of the author was cited, and so we feel we'd be remiss by not mentioning these plot lines. So, spoilers ahead for anyone who didn't watch the show. So in the show, we saw Stannis attempt to march on Winterfell amidst terrible snowy weather conditions, similar to what we saw late on in A Dance with Dragons. We saw his love for his daughter Shireen expressed before the focus shifted to Stannis' desperation to take Winterfell in order to act for the greater good and galvanise the North against the others. However, with parallels to the Greek legend of Agamemnon and Iphigenia, which are also present in the books as we discussed in our recent Crescent episode, Stannis found himself faced with a rather difficult choice. Melisandre counseled him that there was only one way to gain favorable weather. Stannis must sacrifice his daughter to the flames. Having allowed this, and with the failure of the gambit, his and Selyse's cursed deaths were then inevitable. And many fans found this storyline to be unbelievable, given that in Theon 1 of The Winds of Winter, Stannis had underlined the importance of Shireen as his only heir. 
However, looking closely at the books shows that there is groundwork setting up this eventuality. We have a moment in A Storm of Swords which encapsulates the growing theme of Melisandre attempting to burn someone for what she perceives as the greater good. Robert's illegitimate son, Edric Storm, is in line for a roasting before Davos's intervention. Previously, Davos had witnessed an exchange on the subject between the king and his priestess. Stannis ground his teeth again. I never asked for this crown. Gold is cold and heavy on the head, but so long as I am the king, I have a duty. If I must sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the dark. Sacrifice. It is never easy, Davos, or it is no true sacrifice. Tell him, my lady. Melisandre said, Azorahai tempered Lightbringer with the heart's blood of his own beloved wife. If a man with a thousand cows gives one to God, that is nothing. But a man who offers the only cow he owns. So in addition to both Melisandre and Stannis showing themselves willing to sacrifice a child of the king's own blood, in the same book we also learn that they eventually sacrificed the Queen's uncle, Lord Alistair Florent, in order to gain favourable winds for their journey from Dragonstone to Eastwatch. Later, we see Jon Snow send Mance's infant son away in secret, out of fear that Stannis would approve Melisandre, giving him to her flames. If the books go the same way as the show, as the showrunners imply they would, we can view Stance's story as a great tragedy that is prefigured and set in motion from the moment we see the miserable brooding environment of Dragonstone on page. But many fans, in spite of conceding that Stannis presiding over the burning of his daughter is now a distinct possibility, maintain that he will still take Winterfell before that eventuality. For our part, though, We've always thought that Stannis won't be the one to overthrow the Boltons. To us, it seems to make more story sense if the Starks win back their own ancestral home, and even more sense if Stannis' arc continues to be about failure and being not quite good enough. And we're not alone in our doubt. In A Dance with Dragons, John wonders if Stannis will be as bold as his brother Robert would have been in his bid to take the castle, something John views as a necessity to overcome Winterfell's advantage as a defensive fortification. And in his thoughts, the answer is, quote, Not likely. Stannis was a deliberate commander, and his host was a half-digested stew of clansmen, southern knights, king's men and queen's men, salted with a few northern lords. He should move on Winterfell swiftly, or not at all. And so, with those seeds of doubt sown in the text, and although we believe Stannis will be victorious at the crofter's village against the phrase, we wonder if what comes next might be a significant curveball. We have to confess we don't think we have a definitive answer, and in fact, what happens with Stannis depends in large part upon many other factors, such as the nature of the victory over the phrase, what role the Manderleys will play, and whether their reserve and much larger army enters the field, the difficulties with communication, and also whether there's a sudden change of fortune in the area of food stores and weather. 
If Shireen, Selyse, and Melisandre do join Stannis at some point, we think there's a likelihood that Shireen's demise would unfold in a similar way to the show's depiction, perhaps more similar than many fans are anticipating. And because we see the logistical problems of putting this group together in a single location as paramount to how the story unfolds, We've discussed a number of possibilities related to known locations in the North, and so we'll try to scatter a few of what we see as the more likely possibilities out there for your consideration. One thing that could impact any of the options we'll mention is how Stannis' allies from the Mountain Clans will react to the apparent rescue of the Ned's little girl. Saving Arya was essentially their stated reason for being part of the Alliance after all, and having basically seen that accomplished, their continued cooperation is not guaranteed, especially if Stannis declines or fails to execute Theon Greyjoy, as they will no doubt demand. And secondly, we can't forget the party Stannis dispatched to the Wall at the end of Theon I. If the timeline estimates are correct and they make it through, that group would be arriving shortly after the events of John 13 in A Dance with Dragons. The first alternative we've considered is that Stannis defeats the phrase and then stays at the Crofter's village while his men regroup and he plans their next step. Considering his statement at Deepwood, we will free Winterfell or die in the attempt, this would most likely be a direct assault on Winterfell. Besides the potential disintegration of his army, the major problem with this would be the ongoing lack of food. We're told that his army is starving in the days prior to the engagement with the Freys. Unless they're able to capture some rations from the defeated Freys or the Manderley Reserve arrives with critical supplies, we think that Stannis would have to march soon, possibly sooner than he'd like, which, in this case, might turn out to be his downfall. And we don't see much opportunity for the narrative to bring Stannis together with his wife and daughter in this scenario. Another option we considered, though only briefly, is a retreat to Deepwood Mott. But Lady Sybil doesn't have the stores to feed them. In Dance, Asha was concerned with how her own much smaller force would survive there. And Stannis really isn't the type to go backwards. So we gave that idea a pass and considered some other options. Yeah, and these are options we call diversions, as in Stannis diverting his path. There are two castles that could be within reach if the weather began to cooperate. The long shot is Torrens Square, currently held by Dagmar Clefjaw and a small force of Ironborn, which Asha has already offered to help Stannis retake. The easier option is Castle Kerwin, less than a day's ride from Winterfell and one of the most likely places, in our estimation, for Manderley's reserve to have been lying in wait. Although both of those locations are more likely to have some stores that Stannis could appropriate, we have to note that the Crofters' village is about 60 miles northwest of Winterfell and both Torren Square and Castle Kerwin lie south of Winterfell, the former by what looks like at least 50 leagues and the latter by less than one. In either case, Stannis would have to circle around his enemy in order to reach the destination. As attractive as Stannis regrouping peacefully at a secure location sounds, with the uncertainty of the weather, supplies and the northern reaction to the apparent rescue of Arya Stark, 
we think these options are least likely. Another option is that Stannis could return to Castle Black, either out of the need for supplies or because he hears of trouble at the Wall. Remember that Shireen, Selyse, and Melisandre are lightly guarded by a small group of men, decidedly unfit for purpose. If he hears that the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch has apparently been murdered by his own men amidst the hordes of angry wildlings, Stannis could return to the Wall to set things straight. This option basically ignores several factors, one being the so-called Pink Letter, which we'll be discussing shortly, Another that Stannis' ability to receive news is very limited since he's not at a castle and has no maester. And the last being Stannis Baratheon himself, barring the possibility that he suddenly perceives the need to rescue his wife and daughter as more important than his assault on Roose Bolton. We don't see Stannis retreating that far and leaving the job unfinished. This is the guy who ate rats and shoe leather rather than surrender to Mace Tyrell after all. And so, barring some option we haven't considered, and especially given the basic difficulties of two-way communication, we think one of the best options is that perhaps Melisandre could lead or send Selyse and Shireen to Stannis of her own accord in the wake of John's stabbing, perhaps in the company of the escort that arrives with Justin Massey, but again, we have to consider the pink letter, which, arriving just before Jon Snow is stabbed, claims to have been written after the battle at Winterfell. Of course, there is no specific timeline that needs to be followed here, and the show should not be taken as a definite blueprint for how this will play out. Shireen's eventual death isn't necessarily even tied to this particular expedition. Stannis could simply fail to take Winterfell this time, maybe due to the crumbling of his coalition, and retreat somewhere like the Night Fort, which Selyse has repeatedly requested as their seat. And he might brood for some unspecified amount of time before becoming convinced that he must take drastic action to ensure his success. In fact, an extended timeline actually could help to resolve not only the possible timeline issues posed by the pink letter, but also the objections about Stannis's conversation with Justin Massey in Theon 1, where he emphasized the importance of Shireen as his heir, leaving more time for an arc of desperation to show the devolution of Stannis's character and maybe even allow some kind of payoff to all the references about the Night Form. The Night's King, after all as may well be implied in the Storm of Swords, might have been sacrificing his own children to the others at the Night Fort. However it plays out, we think it's fairly certain that Stannis will be reunited with his wife and daughter, however briefly, and that, as he's shown himself ready and willing to do on other occasions, Stannis will make the tragic choice to, quote, sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the dark. The ultimate tragedy, of course, will be that he will fail. Melisandre has it wrong. We've seen her mistakes in action already, and also her connection to Jon Snow growing, none of which bodes very well for Stannis. Stannis is a character bound for tragedy, 
From his first moments on page back at Dragonstone with Maester Cresson, to the highlights of his youth, all grim and tragic, to his last, Stannis will be the Richard III, the Agamemnon, the King Lear of A Song of Ice and Fire. His fall is already foreshadowed throughout his arc, and our speculation is only as to the timing and nature of Stannis's coup de théâtre. Things might be heavily impacted by what happens at the Wall, where Solis and Shireen are currently with Melisandre and Jon Snow. It's time we turn our gaze to the North. Up next, we'll be recapping the situation with our two POVs and other major characters at Castle Black. And now, at the midway point of the episode, it's time for us to say thank you to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks so much to Arodo, Eileen, Oxheart, Alexis, Amber, Hortense of Ashai, B-Word, the Queen Beyond the Wall, Blyde Spirit, Catherine, Chris K, Christian, Marge of the Mage, Dean, Eliana Targaryen, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, John H, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady of the Frostfangs, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, Boss, the Sothorian, Sammy, Scotty, Tim, and Lady Diarliss of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Hey, sleepyhead. Why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. All your questions shall be answered. Look to the skies, Lord Snow, and when you have your answers, send to me. Winter is almost upon us now. I am your only hope. John's thirteenth and final chapter in A Dance with Dragons has a lot going on. Melisandre, having been established as a point-of-view character early in the novel, but only seen through John's perspective since, promises John answers, but the chapter ends having raised more questions than it resolved, and with one of the biggest cliffhangers in the series to date. It begins with John having resolved to lead a rescue expedition to Hardhome for the relief of thousands of free folk who had taken refuge there after Stannis scattered Mance's army, having an audience with Selyse. Let them die, are the first words in the chapter, Selyse's response to John's briefing. This sentiment will be echoed or shared by everyone from those present in the room, Axel Florence, Melisandre, Selyse's six sworn shields, to John's highest ranking officers, Bohem Marsh and Othul Yarwick. To John's frustration, no one seems to share his concern for these humans, many of them women and children, or for the fact that should they die, they will swell the army of the dead by thousands. And faced with Selyse's disinterest in aiding the rescue, John declares that he will lead the ranging, which Selyse sees as a suicide mission. She replies, How bold of you. We approve. 
Afterwards, some bard will make a stirring song about you, no doubt, and we shall have a more prudent Lord Commander, before changing the subject to the marriages she has recently arranged. Yes, Elise has been busy proving the Southerners' complete lack of understanding of wildling culture. She has named Garrett Kingsblood, distantly related to the famed king beyond the wall, Raymond Redbeard, and only recently arrived at the wall as the true king of the wildlings, whereas Mance Raider is termed a usurper. As such, Solice has made matches between Garrick's daughters and her uncle, Axel Florent, and her knights, Sir Bruce and Sir Malagorn. Rather than give voice to his inner thoughts, Garrick is descended from a younger brother of Raymond Redbeard to the free folk that counted about as much as being descended from Raymond Redbeard's horse. They know nothing, Egret, and worse, they will not learn. John instead congratulates the knights, but when Celise declares that another of her knights, Sir Patrick of King's Mountain, will at the same time be wed to the Lady Val, John offers some advice. Amongst the free folk, when a man desires a woman, he steals her and thus proves his strength, his cunning, and his courage. The suitor risks a savage beating if he's caught by the woman's kin, and worse than that if she herself finds him unworthy. This is greeted with scorn by most, laughter by the proposed groom who says, No man has ever cause to question my courage, no woman ever will. And a command from the queen that Val be sent to her to be instructed in the duties of a noble lady toward her lord husband. Though John attempts to add to his advice about Val, he is dismissed, and that's the last we see of Salise, along with Shireen and Patchface. Melisandre, on the other hand, follows John down the stairs. She asks him where Ghost is, a reference to her past urging to keep his wolf close, and then warns him, Salise has the right of this, Lord Snow. Let them die. You cannot save them. Your ships are lost. She claims to have seen this in her fires, though John references her mistakes and tells her that her fires have been known to lie. He demands answers. Where is Stannis? What of Rattleshirt and his spearwives? Where is my sister? And she tells him to look to the skies, and when he has his answers, to send for her. John meets Leathers in the yard and hears that Toreg has returned and is in Hardin's tower with Val and that Tormund would soon arrive with his men. John reveals the uncertainty of his plan. How many men are enough? A hundred? Two hundred? Five hundred? A thousand? Should I take more men or fewer? There is still much to decide. Spread the word. I want all the leading men in the shield hall when the evening watch begins. And so the wheels are set in motion for a gathering that evening. At John's chambers, Mully and Fulk the Flea are on guard. They report that Ghost is acting strangely, appearing highly agitated, which shocks John, but he attributes it to the nearby presence of Borok's boar. He sends his steward Satin to summon Bowen Marsh and Othel Yarwick for a meeting. The two senior officers, who should be John's greatest supporters and advisors, are too deeply rooted in their mistrust and disapproval of the wildlings to be effective. 
and the meeting shows all the warning signs that these two are not adapting to the wildling presence, and they offer no constructive advice. Frustrated that they don't see the danger that thousands of dead wildlings would pose to them, John dismisses them, though he makes it clear he still plans to lead the ranging. As the meeting ends, John's thoughts show the gulf that has arisen between him and his highest-ranking officers. A lord needed men about him that he could rely upon for honest counsel. Marsh and Yarwick were no lickspittles, and that was to the good, but they were seldom any help either. As the two prepare to leave and John is thinking, this was pointless. Pointless, fruitless, hopeless. It says that, quote, ghost sniffed at them, his tail upraised and bristling. And we're reminded, or we should be, of Grey Wind's behaviour in Catelyn 6 of A Storm of Swords as they arrive at the Twins. Grey Wind edged forward, tail stiff, watching through slitted eyes of dark gold. When the frays were half a dozen yards away, Catelyn heard him growl, a deep rumble that seemed almost one with the rush of the river. Rob looked startled. Grey Wind to me. Grey wind, to me, to me. Instead, the direwolf leapt forward, snarling. So the tail, the agitation, these are clear indicators that the wolf senses something amiss. Neither Rob nor John took the hint, though, Rob being too concerned with the need to keep the phrase support, and John too worried about the ranging and too much in the habit of viewing both Marsh and Yarwick as ineffective naysayers. Outside, a wind from the south has blown snow up against the wall, covering the doors to the storerooms and the ice cells. John orders the snow cleared, and the prisoners in the ice cells, including Cregan Carstark, moved. Marsh inquires about his corpses, which John allows can stay in the cells. In case we've forgotten, back in John 7, when he brought his wildling recruits to the Weirwood Grove to say their vows, John found a party of wildlings, including Wunwun, which he brought back to Castle Black, also including two corpses that had been present. And John, it turns out, had hoped to learn something from these dead men, but they had stayed, quote, stubbornly dead. While we don't know if they had been whited, like Othor and Jafer Flowers were when they were brought through the wall, they were already dead when he found them, which at least leaves open the possibility that they were. But it also says that in the ice cells they were, quote, bound with iron chains. And, remembering the swords in the Winterfell crypts, we cannot forget that folk wisdom holds that iron keeps the dead from rising. And so we have to wonder what might happen with the Lord Commander's corpses should their chains ever be removed. At the very least, we can hope, perhaps another instance where our protagonists rediscover the value of knowledge that had been lost or discounted. Tormund arrives with 50 men. And as he and John sit down in the armory to talk about the ranging in advance of the Shield Hall meeting... Mully knocks on the door to announce that Clydus has come with a letter and that he's shaking. Entering, Clydus says, I am being foolish, Lord Commander, but this letter frightens me. 
Now, John assures him that he was right to come at once, and thinking you were right to be afraid, he reads the letter from Ramsey. And we'll have a complete breakdown on the authorship of the letter and the claims it makes coming up in the next segment, including the full text of the letter. But the contents, claims about Stannis' death and defeat and demands for things Ramsay shouldn't know and that John doesn't fully understand, changes everything for John. After sending Satin and Mully off to help Clytus back to his chambers, John reads it aloud for Tormund, who then wonders if it's a skin of lies. John, on the other hand, is remembering Melisandre's words, Look to the skies, when you have your answers, send to me. This letter purports to answer all of the questions he had asked her on the stairs, and he knows there is truth in it, though not how much, and he finds himself having to make a choice, a choice that has been a long time coming, one that has been building through his arc since a Game of Thrones, a choice that is, quote, nothing less than treason, his vows or his heart. He thought of Rob with snowflakes melting in his hair. Kill the boy and let the man be born. He thought of Bran clambering up a tower wall, agile as a monkey, of Rickon's breathless laughter, of Sansa brushing out Lady's coat and singing to herself. You know nothing, Jon Snow. He thought of Arya, her hair as tangled as a bird's nest. I made him a warm cloak from the skins of the six whores who came with him to Winterfell. I want my bride back. I want my bride back. I want my bride. It says that John tells Tormund we had best change the plan and that they then talked for the better part of two hours before leaving the armory for the meeting in the shield hall. Ghost was left behind, though not easily, and John and Tormund, now guarded by Horse and Rory, made their way to the meeting where Bowen Marsh is joined by Wick Whittlestick, Left Hand Lou, Alf of Runnymud, and Osel Yarwick by his builders. The wildling leaders, Sorn Shieldbreaker, Gavin the Traitor, Harl the Handsome, Egon the Old Father and his wives, Howd Wanderer, and Borok are also in attendance. John also makes note of Selyse's knights, Sir Narbert and Sir Benethon, and Melisandre. John informs the men that he summoned them to make plans for the relief of Hardhome, where thousands of free folk are at risk of starving or becoming victims of the dead things in the wood. He notes the failure of the rescue by sea that had been attempted, and also that he had hoped to lead the ranging himself. Now, though, Tormund will lead the rescue mission, while John declares, in response to a shouted question from Borok, I ride south, before reading Ramsay's letter aloud. It says that, quote, the shield hall went mad, and then John reminds the men that the Night's Watch takes no part, and says, I will not ask my brothers to forswear their vows. I will ride to Winterfell alone, unless, is there any man here who will come stand with me? The answers came from Sorin, Toreg, Howd, Brog, Harla Handsome, and Hull Huntsman. 
Egon Oldfather, Blind Doss, the Great Warus, all the wildling leaders who had not yet departed to garrison one of the Night's Watch's castles. He sees Marsh and Yarwick leaving with their men and notes that the Queen's Knights and Melisandre are also gone. Too late, he realises, that he should have gone to Selyse first, given the letter's claims about Stannis' death. He departs, planning to go to Selyse and then on to Melisandre, but as he and Horse and Rory walk out to the yard, they hear a commotion. The disturbance was coming from Hardin's Tower, where, as we know, Val is housed with a number of other spearwives, the baby monster, Leathers, and Onewag Wondarwan, the giant John had brought back from the Weirwood Grove along with his corpses. Recall that at the beginning of the chapter, Celise declared that she was going to wed Val to her knight, Sir Patrick, to which John had replied by noting the wildling custom of a man stealing a woman which didn't seem to faze Sir Patrick at all. Now John looks on in horror as the giant, who is clearly suffering numerous sword cuts, smashes Sir Patrick of King's Mountain against the wall of the tower. Through the chaos, John tries to think of ways to calm the enraged giant as Wunwun begins to tear limbs from the dead man. John calls for Leathers to talk to him and commands everyone to stay back and put up their steel. He sees a flash and turns to Wick Whittlestick, yelling, put up that knife, but the knife is meant for him. Wick slashes at his throat before John catches his hand. Asked why, it says, Wick replied, for the watch, and then... Wick slashed at him again. This time John caught his wrist and bent his arm back until he dropped the dagger. The gangling steward backed away, his hands upraised, as if to say, Not me. It was not me. Then comes Bowen Mars saying the same three words for the watch as he stabs John in the belly. Et too, Bowen. And then a third blade takes him between the shoulder blades and John's A Dance with Dragon's Ark ends with, he never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. So, there was indeed a lot of action in this chapter, and a lot to unpack, especially in terms of predicting what might come next. Remember that as this chapter comes to a close, one one is still smashing Sir Patrick's lifeless corpse, men are screaming, an army of wildlings have just pledged their swords to Jon Snow, and we have no idea how widespread this second mutiny of the Night's Watch against its Lord Commander in a matter of months truly is. But now we see the validity of Melisandre's many warnings to Jon throughout A Dance with Dragons play out on page. She had recently warned Jon, I see your face every time I look into the flames. The danger that I warned you of grows very close now. And as that danger has now engulfed him, Coming up shortly, we'll be discussing what the winds of winter might have in store for John and Melisandre and all of the others at the wall. But first, we're going to step back and take a very close look at that letter that arguably caused much of this chaos as we try to untangle the pink letter. Bastard. 
was the only word written outside the scroll. No Lord Snow or John Snow or Lord Commander, simply Bastard. And the letter was sealed with a smear of hard pink wax. You were right to come at once, John said. You were right to be afraid. He cracked the seal, flattened the parchment, and read. Your false king is dead, bastard. He and all his host were smashed in seven days of battle. I have his magic sword. Tell his red whore. Your false king's friends are dead, their heads upon the walls of Winterfell. Come see them, bastard. Your false king lied and so did you. You told the world you burned the king beyond the wall. Instead, you sent him to Winterfell to steal my bride from me. I will have my bride back. If you want Mance Raider back, come and get him. I have him in a cage for all the North to see, proof of your lies. The cage is cold, but I have made him a warm cloak from the skins of the six whores who came with him to Winterfell. I want my bride back. I want the false king's queen. I want his daughter and his red witch. I want his wildling princess. I want his little prince, the wildling babe. And I want my reek. Send them to me, bastard, and I will not trouble you or your black crows. Keep them from me, and I will cut out your bastard's heart and eat it. It was signed, Ramsay Bolton, Trueborn Lord of Winterfell. As we discussed in that last section, in his final A Dance with Dragons chapter, John receives a letter purportedly sent by Lord Ramsay Bolton, having been told by Melisandre to look to the skies for answers mere hours before. John reacted to the letter by announcing his intent to march on Winterfell with an army of free folk right before he was stabbed by his own men. The letter itself has caused much intrigue in the fandom, who consider it one of the mysteries they want to see resolved in The Winds of Winter, who actually wrote it, how much of it is true, and what the implications might be going forward. And so, the so-called pink letter has been a rich source of drama, both inside and outside of the text. And so now, let's consider this letter and discuss the various possibilities. Before we start, we want to tip our hats to all the fans who have contributed to this discussion. There's not much we can say that hasn't already been said in some way by the many eager readers analysing the pink letter so closely. That said, what we can do is offer our opinion on the various evidences that have been presented and collated from Reddit to Westeros.org over the years. We also want to acknowledge that, like most everyone else, we don't really give any credit to the claim that Stannis is dead. 
Much like John himself, or Danny, or even Sander Clegane, all characters whose arcs contain major cliffhangers, Stannis is a character whose literary arc is incomplete. And so we feel confident that Stannis can join Mark Twain in declaring the report of my death was an exaggeration. For now. So as the fandom sees it, there are really three prime suspects for the letter's authorship. Stannis Baratheon, Mance Raider, and Ramsay himself. According to readers, Stannis's motive would be a straightforward one. He's currently holed up in that icy crofter's village with barely enough men to aid him on his quest to defeat the Freys and then march on Winterfell itself. Stannis is in a desperate situation and would surely benefit from assistance. In this theory, Stannis is goading Jon Snow into an attack on Winterfell, which just might benefit his own cause. He knows the situation at the Wall and of Jon's character, having offered Jon the lordship of Winterfell without success. Could the answer to Stannis's prayers be Jon attacking Ramsay there now? While some fans believe that Stannis could have sent a raven to the Wall, this is disputed by others. And we want to add that in our opinion, there is very little chance that Stannis could have sent this letter. He has no maester with him, and no ravens, other than the two he confiscated from Maester Tybalt of the Dreadfort in that Theon sample chapter, which are specifically noted to fly only to Winterfell. Probably the most frequently cited detail in support of this idea is that in the letter there is a claim that Stannis himself is dead. In the Theon Sample chapter, Stannis sends Justin Massey east to recruit sellswords, telling him this, In Bravos, you may hear that I am dead. It may even be true. Readers wonder if this could indicate some sort of scheme by Stannis that he might be planning to fake his death in some way. News of Stannis' demise would make Jon feel like he's the last defence the North has against Ramsay, which could motivate the Lord Commander to attack Winterfell. On the flip side... We can't be sure Stannis even knows about the Mance and his Spearwives infiltration. Melisandre might have told him, but if not, then Stannis simply doesn't have the information at hand to have written those pertinent details in the letter. And finally, Stannis might be a crafty war commander, but is he in possession of the low cunning being suggested here? Would he, the man so honest he struck the word beloved from the letter about his brother, come up with this rather convoluted plot in order to entice the Night's Watch to attack Winterfell? The idea that Stannis authored the Pink Letter becomes increasingly far-fetched the more it's examined. Furthermore, even if Stannis did fake his own death, it isn't necessarily proof that he wrote the letter. If that were the case, then it's just as likely that one of the other candidates might have heard the story and repeated it unknowingly. And so let's shift on and take a look at prime suspect number two, Mance Raider. Like Stannis, he almost certainly has a strong need for help, which can be viewed as a motive. Mance might have survived the aftermath of Theon and Jane's escape, but he could still be in some trouble. 
Perhaps he wants John to rescue him from Winterfell, or wants to be reunited with his wildling army in an audacious power move. Unlike Stannis, we can be sure that Mance is well-informed on the Spearwife plot, and so the inclusion of those details fits. It's also been noted that the term Black Crows is used when referring to John's Night's Watchmen later in the letter, a term usually employed by wildlings in the text, and the fandom has gone back and forth over whether Mance is literate enough to have written the letter. He could certainly have had some schooling with the Night's Watch, and he obviously knows how anagrams work, given his choice of the name Abel, which is an anagram for Bale, the name of another wildling bard who once infiltrated Winterfell. This must give him the benefit of the doubt regarding his literacy. However, if Mance was hiding in the shadows at Winterfell, it surely would have been very difficult to get a raven off to Castle Black, Perhaps not impossible, but difficult all the same. At the same time, the smear of pink wax the letter is sealed with is sometimes noted as indicating that the letter was sent surreptitiously or hurriedly. But, as with Stannis, we again arrive at the question of character. Is Mance really the kind of person to engineer a battle to save his own hide? Is he, at this moment really going to be trying to pull off an elaborate scheme in order to be commanding his wildlings again? How would he know what decisions John would make regarding who to bring with him, keeping in mind that John wasn't certain himself until the final moments of his final chapter? Is this plot of deceit and subterfuge really attributable to the Mance Raider we know? And we'll let you sit with those thoughts. And now we come to our final and prime suspect, Ramsay Bolton himself, the so-called true-born Lord of Winterfell. On inspection, the pink letter is littered with the pride of a man who isn't a bastard anymore. From the address to John reading only bastard, to the use of the phrase true-born Lord for himself in the signature, the taunting letter of this language reeks, if you will, of Ramsay. His central motive relates to this pride as well as practicality. If Jane isn't found quickly, it could be the undoing of his lordly status. Ramsay needs Jane, posing as Arya Stark, to support that status, a fact which must strike a nerve within his self-concept. We all remember Ramsay having his fun with both Theon and Jane, and so the sadistic bastard no doubt pines for his toys back. Aside from anything else, he thrived on the control he had over them, and now they have escaped together. His rage at the loss of his playthings would probably equal his fear of being uncovered perpetrating a massive fraud. Such is the psychopathic mind of Ramsay Snow. Perhaps it took just such a mind to write this letter. Ultimately, if Ramsay wrote the letter, the claims he makes have to be evaluated as being either truth, unknowing misinformation, or outright lies, or a combination of the three. And so we must examine Ramsay's potential to have knowledge of some of the things the letter mentions. These things fall under two categories, knowledge from within Winterfell and knowledge from without. 
The author of the letter claims that inside Winterfell, Ramsay has Mance hostage and has skinned the six spearwives. Basically, much of the letter is information Ramsay could have gotten from Mance and or the spearwives. So let's examine this claim. Of the six, we know that Holly is dead. It says in A Dance with Dragons, Jane Paul was staring down at Holly as the snowy blanket over her turned from white to red. And Frenya was last seen fighting half a dozen guardsmen in the snow. And so she's likely dead as well. But it also says of Abel, Rowan, Squirrel and the others, there was no sign. And so one possibility is that Ramsay has captured at least one of the remaining spearwives and tortured her or them into confessing their infiltration plans. While this is plausible, it might make more sense if he'd captured Mance too. Mance might have had greater knowledge than the others, and the information that could be gained from torturing Mance might explain the letter writer's knowledge of the situation at the Wall, of Melisandre and Sanus's magic sword, of Val and the Babe, of Selyse and Shireen. Although, of note, Selyse didn't arrive at Castle Black until some weeks after Mance had left, so it's not clear how much knowledge he would have had of her. Overall, we rate the claim that the letter writer has Mance hostage and has killed the Spearwives as likely to be either true or partially true. However, there's a strong possibility that the claims regarding what's happening outside of Winterfell, that Stannis has been defeated and killed, for instance, might be attributed to Ramsay being misinformed perhaps by Stannis himself, remembering those two ravens that fly only to Winterfell that he confiscated from the Karstarks, or by the Mandalees. Could either Stannis or the Mandalees have sent a false message to Ramsay following the defeat of the phrase? The potential contents of such a letter could explain a lot of what Ramsay's letter says about a battle people's deaths and the whereabouts of both Theon and Jane. If that were the case, much of the rest of the letter could be Ramsay simply lying to cause fear and make the most of his victory. But at the same time, with regard to the information from outside Winterfell, the entire letter could be lies. In Theon 1, we see Theon express his fear that Ramsay would be marching on the heels of the Frey Manderley contingent. If that was true, this letter could have been sent after Theon escaped with Jane and the Spearwives were captured, but before he marched. In other words, and in keeping with the ego of a known psychopath, the letter could be a premature boast of the victory Ramsay was sure would be his. And in support of the letter either being a result of a campaign of misinformation or being written before any actual engagement occurred, Ramsay doesn't seem to know that both John and Stannis know about the Arnolf Karstark plot. But even if he's making things up, he clearly at least suspects that Theon and Jane made their way to Stannis's camp. And we know that while both Theon and Jane were in Stannis's camp at one point, Jane was preparing to depart for the wall in Theon 1. 
If Ramsay had defeated Stannis as definitively as the letter claims, he would almost certainly have his reek back, plus Asher, who was also Stannis's captive, unless they had been killed or had escaped during the battle. In this case, he would only be demanding his bride back. On the other hand, the fact that he demands that Jon Snow return his bride and his reek is the one thing in the letter that points to him having some scrap of knowledge of what happened in Stannis' camp before the battle. Somehow, whether from a spy or from purposefully delivered information, Ramsay seems to know that a party departed for the wall and he assumes that it included both Jane and Theon. Altogether, the letter is a confusing mashup of truth, misinformation, and lies, and we think this is why it seems so outlandish and yet so plausible at the same time. While detractors of the Ramsay theory point out that he included no patch of skin with the letter as he had done in previous letters, it's also been noted that John had already seen Ramsay's distinctive handwriting and would have noticed a different style. And while the pink smudge on the letter might be proof it came from elsewhere, it could also be evidence of Ramsay's erratic frame of mind when he wrote it and that he sent it without the involvement of a maester. Overall, the pink letters provided us readers with mysteries to unpack in the long waits for The Winds of Winter, yet there might be some danger in analysing too much. While the cases for Stannis and Mance do have their strengths, to us the case for Ramsay seems the likeliest. Perhaps above all else, the style of the letter fits the character of Ramsay, and so in our opinion, the mystery would ultimately be not so much who wrote the pink letter, but what parts of it are to be believed, as we've discussed. And now, in our next and final segment, we'll be speculating on the aftermath of what happened in those final moments of John 13, after John reacted to Ramsay's letter. It is not the foes who curse you to your face that you must fear, but those who smile when you are looking and sharpen their knives when you turn your back. You would do well to keep your wolf close beside you. Ice, I see, and daggers in the dark. Blood, frozen, red and hard, and naked steel. It was very cold. When the curtain opens on Castle Black in The Winds of Winter, we can be almost certain the POV character will be Melisandre of Ashai. What she'll be viewing is the aftermath of an attempted assassination of the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch by a group of his own men. But we can't forget everything else that will be happening simultaneously an army of free folk who have just committed to follow that Lord Commander into battle, a desperately needed relief ranging to Hardhome planned to be a joint effort between free folk and Night's Watch, the sudden slaughter of Sir Patrick of King's Mountain by a still rampaging giant, Selyse's reaction to the reports of her husband's death and the death of one of her sworn swords, and the possible arrival at Castle Black 
of any number of numerous characters last known to be heading that way. And so, what we'll be doing in this section is trying to untangle who will be doing what amidst all of this chaos. Unlike many of the other locales we'll be treating in this series, there is no spoiler material available to us from the Winds of Winter set at the Wall. For obvious reasons, of course, but what this pragmatic truth means is that here we'll be relying solely on analysis and educated guesswork. The first thing we, and we imagine possibly also Melisandre, will want to do is identify who the conspirators were. We shouldn't forget that Mel might have a very good idea of their identities already, remembering her warning to John in his first A Dance with Dragons chapter. Do you refuse my friendship, John? I have seen you in the storm, hard-pressed, with enemies on every side. You have so many enemies. Shall I tell you their names? Now, we ourselves know that Bowen Marsh was involved, and Wick Whittlestick. And other suspects we can speculate about are Left Hand Lou and Alf of Runnymud, who were with Bowen in the Shield Hall along with Wick. Alf is a builder and one of the Night's Watch who has converted to the worship of Relor and now counts himself among the Queen's Men. He was a close friend of Garth Greyfeather, one of nine rangers whom John sent out scouting beyond the wall, and who was one of the group that was brutally killed by the wildling known as the Weeper. Alf's distress upon hearing the news of his friend's death was obvious, and so he is one who definitely has reason to be angry with the Lord Commander's choices, and it's possible that his presence as the only builder amongst a group of stewards at the Shield Hall marks him out as a conspirator. And Left Hand Lou is a survivor of the Fist and the mutiny at Craster's, who was among the men John chose to escort Sam, Gilly and Maester Eamon to Eastwatch. He attended John as a guard when Tormund led the Free Folk through the wall. If he was a member of the conspiracy, it will probably come as a shock, since he was clearly someone John trusted. Also noted to be in the Shield Hall was first builder Othel Yarwick along with a group of his builders. Othel had met with John and Bowen Marsh earlier that day, and it's worth noting that while Yarwick had been spending a lot of time away from the Wall repairing castles, he was also involved as a senior officer in most of John's major decisions. Like Bowen Marsh, he seemed to disapprove of them unilaterally, and John has come to think of the two as an immovable barrier to the progress of his own vision. Remember this. Marsh and Yarwick were no lickspittles, and that was to the good, but they were seldom any help either. Because of all the build-up of Othel's unhappiness with John and his presence in the Shield Hall, we'd have to count him in as a likely conspirator as well. Beyond Marsh and Yarwick, and the men they had by their sides at the end of A Dance with Dragons, it's impossible to say exactly how far-reaching this plot was. The setup of the revolt of the senior officers is quite thorough, especially for Bowen Marsh, who sustained a head injury at the Bridge of Skulls in the Storm of Swords, and then supported Janos Slint in the choosing after his own bid failed, and whose every interaction with John in dance is fraught with obstructionism, whataboutism, and obvious displeasure, to the point that their exchange at the end of John 11 causes John to think of Melisandre's warning. 
Ice, she said, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard, and naked steel. However, it's less clear for the subordinates. In A Storm of Swords, 588 men cast their votes in John's choosing, which he won by a landslide. This included men from both the Shadow Tower and Eastwatch, who will have returned to their posts, including Sir Glendon Hewitt, a one-time ally of Janos Slint, who was left in charge at Eastwatch when Cotter Pike departed on the rescue mission by sea to Hardhome. But while a number of other Black Brothers have either died, think Janos Slint, Blackjack Bulwer, Maester Eamon, and others, or been reassigned, think Sam, Gren, Pip, Dolores Ed, Iron Emmett, and the like, there must still be several hundred men of the Watch at Castle Black. Yeah, and while John has his doubts about many, surely men like Satin, Folk, Molly, Rory, Horse, Hob, Ulmer, and Big Liddle remain loyal to John. Master at Arms, Leathers, and the new recruits from the Free Folk certainly would be as well. But it's crucial to note that all of John's close friends were slowly moved away from him during A Dance with Dragons, a purposeful move by the author to isolate John among his enemies. Now, one thing of interest is that it's highly likely that the final meeting John had with Marsh and Yarwick, where he affirmed his plan to lead the ranging to Hardhome for the relief of the free folk there, was probably the last straw and led them to acting, quote, for the watch. But since John's plan following Ramsay's letter and the meeting in the Shield Hall essentially meant he was abdicating his leadership of the watch to act as a private person, we have to suppose that their actions weren't just about John's leadership, but about something else. Two somethings, in fact, namely John's oath-breaking and also the wildling presence at the wall. John had allowed some 3,119 free folk by Bowen Marsh's count to cross the wall mere days before the events of his final dance chapter, including 500 to 1,000 warriors, a decision Bowen Marsh regarded as contrary to the Night's Watch oath. Of these, 100 were hostages, sons of the leaders of the Free Folk, who swore their swords and their axes to John as they passed through the first gate. Many of the Free Folk had been dispersed to garrison vacant castles along the wall, including six wagons of spearwives to Long Barrow and Mourner White Mask with an unspecified number of followers to Queensgate, while 60 of the hostages were sent to Eastwatch and the Shadow Tower. Tormund Giantsbane, whose own son Dryn was a hostage at Castle Black, had led a party to Oakenshield, but had recently returned with 50 men, including his eldest son Torek. Many others remained at Castle Black, including Soren Shieldbreaker, who just days before had sworn to John, Soren's axe is yours, Jon Snow, if ever you have need of such, and Torig, Howd, Brog, Harl the Handsome and Harl the Huntsman, Egon Oldfather, Blind Doss, and the Great Walrus, all of whom had made similar vows. These men, it was planned, would soon move out to garrison other deserted Night's Watch castles, or would, ostensibly, follow John in the field, whether to Hardhome, as he had originally planned, or now to Winterfell. 
So while we cannot say exactly how many of the free folk remain at Castle Black or its environs, we'd have to put the number in the thousands still. There simply hasn't been enough time to move out more than a few hundred at a time. Of the thousand or so free folk who had been captured by Stannis, perhaps the one with the most followers would be Sigorn of Then, who leads 200 warriors and had recently wed Alice Carstock. We know of the new couple's intent to ride for the Carhold and retake the castle from Cregan's men, two of whom had already joined Alice, but we don't know if they've set out yet. According to our best guess, the wedding and John 13 are mere days apart, a week at most. As Sigorn isn't mentioned in the Shield Hall meeting, we should perhaps assume that they have gone south, but keep them in mind as likely allies of Jon Snow, especially given Alice's promise to Jon that Carhold remembers. And speaking of the Karstark-Then wedding, there were a pair of guests there who had arrived representing the Mountain Clans. Of Lords Brandon Norrie and Torgan Flint, known as the Norrie and Old Flint, it says each had, quote, brought a tale of fighting men, five for Old Flint, twelve for the Norrie, all clad in ragged skins and studded leathers, fearsome as the face of winter. We know that the Norrie and Flint, whom John suspected were present as much to evaluate him as to celebrate a marriage, remained at the wall in the days after the wedding as they were present at John's meeting atop the wall where he detailed his agreement to let Tormund cross. These clan leaders were initially not impressed by John's plan, but upon hearing the details, especially that John had required hostages, they seemed to be in grudging agreement. When the Norrie asked if John would do what was necessary with the hostages should their fathers prove false, John replied, I may seem a green boy in your eyes, Lord Norrie, but I am still a son of Eddard Stark. And while this may have assuaged the two men's doubts on the wildling question, there are others who believe this statement also confirmed something else for them. For those fans who look for evidence of conspiracies in the North to overthrow the Boltons and re-establish House Stark, whether it's by a concerted effort spanning many lords and houses, or by multiple individual conspiracies of people with similar goals, the presence of Old Flint and the Nori at the Wall means one thing. That word of Rob's will, naming John as his successor, had made it to the mountain clans, and that these men have come to evaluate John's suitability for that role. In fact, George indicated as far back as 2015 that he would be resolving the issue of Rob's will in the upcoming pages, so we rate this as a distinct possibility, in which case, declaring himself to be a son of Eddard Stark must have surely gone a long way to winning them over. While we don't know for sure if the two men and the 17 companions remain, in spite of the fact that they weren't mentioned in the Shield Hall, we think there's a greater chance that they're still at Castle Black than the Then Karstarks. And there are still other guests at the wall as well. Val held at Hardin's Tower with the child Monster and a number of wildling women and, of course, Selyse and Melisandre and their retinues. 
When Stannis left Castle Black, Melisandre had been granted a retinue which comprised Devon Seaworth and 12 soldiers, noted to be mostly greybeards and cripples. Melisandre's point of view elaborates. One man had been blinded by a blow to his head in the battle at the wall, another lamed when his falling horse crushed his legs. Her sergeant had lost an arm to a giant's club. Three of her guard were geldings that Stannis had castrated for raping wildling women. She had two drunkards and a craven, too. And when Solis arrived at Castle Black in John 9, we're told she was attended by, quote, a retinue of knights, sworn swords, and men-at-arms, fifty strong. Queen's men all, Jon Snow knew. They may attend Solis, but it is Melisandre they serve. And that last part might be of extreme importance in the opening moments of The Winds of Winter, because, as we mentioned, in addition to the plot to assassinate the Lord Commander, there'll be something else going on. Continuing the chaos from the end of John 13, the giant one-one, normally pliable and easily contained by leathers, has been driven to a red rage by something that occurred while the meeting in the Shield Hall was ending. So let's untangle that situation and how it might continue to play out. As we've noted, in John 13, when Solis announced her intention of marrying Val to her knight, Sir Patrick, John had replied by describing the custom of the free folk that dictated that a prospective husband must steal his bride. Patrick's reply No man has ever had cause to question my courage, and no woman will. Might be an indicator that he took up the challenge, as it were. In John 11, when informing Val of her new quarters at Harden's Tower, John told her, I can promise that you'll not be troubled by unwanted visitors, however. My own men guard Harden's Tower, not the Queen's, and one one sleeps in the entry hall. And getting back to John's statement to Solis and Sir Patrick about wildling custom, recall that he stated, The suitor risks a savage beating if he is caught by the woman's kin, and worse than that if she herself finds him unworthy. Assuming that Patrick decided to try his hand at abduction and was found to be unworthy by Val, we now assume that Wunwun is standing in for her family and has given Patrick the savage beating, and worse, that was promised. This, of course, was exacerbated by the fact that Sir Patrick fought back with steel, wounding and enraging the giant. As to what will happen next, just before he was stabbed, John was attempting to get Leathers to calm the giant, while the rest of the Queen's men, and many others, looked on. There are basically two things that could happen here. Leathers succeeds in spite of the chaos caused by the stabbing, and a tense standoff ensues. Or maybe the Queen's men do exactly what John was afraid of, and attack one one out of vengeance for their fallen comrade. Could Selyse's men bring down the angry giant? Perhaps not just her five knights alone, but if the four dozen or so men-at-arms join in, we don't see much hope for one one. And we do see the potential for further bloodshed as free folk rush to defend the giant and perhaps a general melee ensues. So we've outlined who is or who might be present at Castle Black, noting that the free folk vastly outnumber both Queen's men and the Night's Watch. 
And now we'll take a few moments to quickly go over who might arrive there in the opening chapters of The Winds of Winter. We've mentioned this before, but there are numerous minor characters whose movements seem to be taking them in that direction. And of course, one POV character as well. And that is none other than Stannis's hand, Lord Davos Seaworth. Davos has been absent on a secret mission to Lord Wyman Manderley in White Harbor since early in A Dance with Dragons. That mission ended, as far as Stannis and those at the Wall are aware, with Davos being executed by Lord Wyman on behalf of the Lannisters. Readers are aware, though, that Davos was tasked with yet another secret mission by Lord Wyman to retrieve Rickon Stark from Skagos, the price of obtaining White Harbor's support for Stannis. And we'll be going over Davos and his movements in our next episode, but we want to make sure to mention here that we fully expect the time has come for him to return to the page. If he arrives at Castle Black early in the Winds of Winter, with or without Rickon, we see him as a neutral character who may be instrumental in reclaiming calm from the chaos that gripped the place at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Of note though, George has indicated that both Rickon and Osha will appear in the Winds of Winter, as well as unicorns, which many assume, and with good reason, to be references to Skagos. In that case, perhaps we shouldn't count on Davos arriving at Castle Black too soon. While others who are en route to the Wall include Justin Massey, with Tycho Nestoris, Alison Mormont, and Jane Poole in tow, We've already discussed some of what we expect from this group, but let's add to that that Justin Massey could shed some light on the claims from the pink letter, though Stannis specifying that Justin might hear of his death as he was departing could just as well add to the confusion. Allie Mormont, like so many other Northerners, might arrive bearing secret knowledge of Rob Stark's will, while Jane is at risk of being identified Not by the presumably unconscious John, but by the child Rickon, should they cross paths. Others less likely to have an immediate impact include Sir Robin Ryger and Sir Desmond Grell, captain of the guard and master at arms from Riverrun, who in A Feast for Crows requested that they be allowed to take the black following the surrender of Riverrun to Jamie Lannister. The speculation that these two might be going to the wall bearing secret messages for John is a reasonable one, considering that they had the opportunity to meet privately with Edmund Tully, one of the signers of Rob's will, just before making this request. Also not likely to have an immediate impact, but definitely a possible arrival at Castle Black would be a group accompanying a shipment from Dragonstone. Way back in A Storm of Swords, when Sam meets with Stannis and they discuss his killing of the other, Stannis tells him, On Dragonstone, where I had my seat, there is much of this obsidian to be seen in the old tunnels beneath the mountain. Chunks of it, boulders, ledges. The great part of it was black, as I recall, but there was some green as well, some red, even purple. I have sent word to Sir Roland, my castellan, to begin mining it. I will not hold Dragonstone for very much longer, I fear, but perhaps the Lord of Light shall grant us enough frozen fire to arm ourselves against these creatures before the castle falls. 
And so we don't know if Sir Roland Storm was able to send this obsidian north before the Lannister Tyrell army sailed for Dragonstone. But if they did, perhaps we might see it arriving at the Wall early in the Winds of Winter. And then there are possible rangers returning. John had sent nine men ranging in three groups of three. One of those groups has already been returned, as heads mounted on pikes by the Weeper. But another of the groups included Sir Alistair Thorne and Dywin. John's relationship with Thorne has always been adversarial, and Sir Alistair vocally opposed his plan to let the wildlings pass through the wall. But he also held his tongue when John executed Janos Slint for insubordination and took the ranging assignment reluctantly to avoid the same fate. Should his group return alive? Would a returning Sir Alistair join in the mutiny? Or has his reluctance to be insubordinate shown this to be simply too out of character for him in spite of his hatred of John? And the final possibility of new arrivals early in the Winds of Winter goes back to events in King's Landing in A Feast for Crows, when Cersei and Kyburn openly discussed a plan to send a group of recruits to the Wall as a Trojan horse of sorts, for among them would be a man tasked with assassinating the Lord Commander. This plan, ironically very similar to the plan Tyrion enacted in A Clash of Kings to free Jaime from Riverrun, was never set into motion due to Cersei's arrest. Yeah, remember, she had promised Osney Kettleblack that in exchange for lying about sleeping with Marjorie, he would be allowed to take the black, and after he killed Jon Snow, he would be pardoned and released from the watch. All that changed when both she and Osney were arrested, but it's an interesting note that Kyburn, with whom the plan originated, remains on the small council, and in the months since Cersei's arrest, could very easily have put another version of this plan into action. And so, how do we expect events to play out at the Wall as they relate to John and his assassination? Given that they have all recently sworn their swords to John, once when passing through the Wall, and more recently in the Shield Hall, we can expect that the Free Folk will by and large stand for John and against those who rebelled against him. Tormund is the natural leader of this group, especially given it was he who gathered up and led the majority of them through the wall. But we won't be alone in surmising this. Assuming that Bowen Marsh recognized that any loyalty shown by the Free Folk would be to John himself, we have to be concerned with the hostages, 40 of whom remain at Castle Black and almost certainly under Bowen's care, since they were likely performing tasks relating to his domain, being pages, training as stewards, helping in the stables, etc. Keep an eye out for Bowen to attempt to use these children as leverage to control their parents. As the unfortunate Sir Patrick's fate indicates, Val is unlikely to be marrying anyone. Since we wonder... If the long game for Val might have something to do with John himself, we think she'll stay in her tower, firmly rejecting Salisa's intentions, should any more suitors try to chance their luck. She could, however, be instrumental in the leadership of the assembled free folk at a critical time, and so we don't just look to her to stay in the background. 
Yeah, as we've noted, there's a distinct possibility that the Free Folk and the Queen's Men come to blows over the death of Sir Patrick. Could Val try to help bring peace? Val and Melisandre between them could be voices of reason, and given that John notes that Selyse's men really answer to Melisandre, this could be the key to preventing further bloodshed between those two groups. And finally, the situation for the conspirators relies very heavily on the level of support they have within the Watch itself. In the event that their support is unanimous, it's possible that a general coup could take place with John's supporters ousted and all of his policies reversed. However, if the conspiracy is more limited in scope and relied on the mere hope that the men of the Watch would support their actions, we could see a very different fate unfolding for the leaders of the plot, with John's supporters resisting their actions and possibly trying to hold them to account. And one other thing we should consider in this scenario is the nature of Stannis Baratheon and those who support him. Though many among the Queen's men, Axel Florent among them, might not be overly concerned by John's removal, we think that Melisandre and Davos Seaworth especially, should he return, and possibly even Selyse herself, might see things very differently. Remember that Stannis is unlikely to support a complete breakdown of chain of command by men who are in disagreement with their leader's policies. In our opinion, Stannis's followers who share his worldview are much more likely to take the conspirators into custody than they are to support them. As for Flints and Norries, Carstarks and Thens, a moment from Bear Island and men of the Riverlands, should any of them be present, we suspect they'll be watching very closely and that their reactions could range from silent support to outright declarations. If these people were looking to John as their new leader, having so recently lost both Ned and Rob to treachery, it's hard to see them staying completely neutral. And so we've laid out some possibilities for what the majority of people will do in the aftermath of John's stabbing, but what about John himself? Very few people believe he's actually permanently dead, after all, in spite of the fact that the major cliffhanger of A Dance with Dragons was the fate of Jon Snow. The vast majority of fans don't believe that George would kill off Jon at this stage, and comments made since by George himself, like, you think he's dead, do you? Support that. And so the key question the stabbing presented was if John was actually killed by his black brothers, and if so, how he would be resurrected in the Winds of Winter. So following the attempt on his life, the chapter ends with the memorable line, He never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. We find it curious that John did not feel the knife. He is not feeling the pain of the stabbings, yet he still feels the pain of coldness. Given his last word was ghost, there's a possibility that John was attempting to walk his direwolf at that fateful moment. And in fact, similar theories have been advanced about Rob. 
Prologues are sometimes used by George to impart useful information about the story ahead, and in Varamir's A Dance with Dragons prologue, we learn that suffering physical death and entering his wolf for his second life, where a warg or skin changer lives on inside their animal after death, brings an innate coldness with it. It says, True death came suddenly. He felt a shock of cold as if he had been plunged into the icy waters of a frozen lake. This quote might provide a link between what Varamir was going through and what was happening to John. And in turn, we are reminded of Melisandre's vision that was surely predicting John's stabbing. Ice, I see, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen, red and hard, and naked steel. It was very cold. And so it might be that the description of Varamir's flight into Second Life could have been placed to serve a greater purpose than just to comment on Varamir himself. John has already pondered the nature of Second Life, both in A Storm of Swords, where he thought, could some part of him live on in his wolf? And in A Dance with Dragons, where he wondered if some part of his dead brothers lived on inside their wolves. Perhaps with his mind inside his wolf, his body could be preserved somehow before resurrection. As we know, rather than dungeons, Castle Black has ice cells, which are so cold, John likens them to a tomb. And as we know from Maester Aemon, cold preserves. When John visits the cells, it says John could see his own reflection dimly inside the ice walls, which could work as possible foreshadowing for his body being placed there later on. All the way back in A Game of Thrones, in Bran's coma dream, he saw this. His bastard brother, John, sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. So there is a decent case to be made that John's mind is in ghost and his body might be held in icy preservation as he awaits resurrection, although it could simply be the case that he's dead and is brought back to life without the need for working or preservation. The idea that John simply survived the stabbing also has its believers, but we think the notion that John is dead and will be brought back has been much more set up in the text, including nods to resurrection mythology, such as Mormont's raven seeming to refer to John as the Corn King of Celtic mythology. And how John would be resurrected is another intriguing mystery, with some wondering if ghosts could be sacrificed to force John back into his body, which is a possibility which would no doubt deeply sadden many of us. Hopefully this won't be necessary, and good old-fashioned magic could do the job. We have the obvious parallel of Thoros of Mir resurrecting Beric Dondarrion with the fiery kiss six times, with Beric himself eventually passing on the gift to Catelyn Stark, who herself had been dead for days. And since Thoros, like Melisandre, is a priest of R'hllor, many readers wonder about Melisandre's role in this process. In spite of her mistakes, she does have strong magical powers, Residing at the Wall with her powers in fire magic, which apparently, for some, includes the power of resurrection, she is certainly a hot favorite to come to John's aid, as she tried to do during A Dance with Dragons. Overall, 
Despite there being a plethora of possibilities for John's resurrection, most agree that his death will ultimately be a fake-out of sorts. To avoid feeling like too much of a cliché, some readers want to see change in John following his time in the void. If John is trapped inside Ghost for an extended time, will he take on some of Ghost's personality, for example, become more intuitive? Or should we look to the changes in Beric Dondarrion, little losses of self with each rebirth for a hint at another way death could affect him? And what of John's life following resurrection? Surely if John is temporarily dead, rather than being just a cliffhanger to bookend A Dance with Dragons, it will be an opportunity to change the flow of his story. It's hard to ignore the passage of the Night's Watch vows that goes, Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. If John is bound to the Night's Watch until his death, upon his resurrection... Has he not served his time? Only the winds of winter knows the answers to such questions, but we can be sure that, following this reboot, John's life will be headed in new directions that might not be contained to Castle Black and the Wall. If John is revived relatively quickly, then a number of things could happen. He could head south as planned, possibly now thinking he's going to Stannis' aid, or possibly just to meet Ramsay in the field. He could instead decide to lead the mission to Hardhome and forestall his meeting with Ramsay. But before he does either of those things, he could have the opportunity to judge the men who murdered him, possibly conducting the executions himself as befits a son of Eddard Stark. One of the things we should keep in mind, though, is that George has commented that for many of his characters in The Winds of Winter, things will get worse before they get better. And because the Battle of Ice was originally planned for A Dance with Dragons, and due to the cliffhanger nature of John's dance arc, we expect Castle Black and the environs of Winterfell to be primary settings in the early stages of the Winds of Winter. While things proceed with varying degrees of drama in our other locales, the North is the one that very many of our characters, POV and otherwise, are converging upon, as we'll see in the upcoming episodes of this series. I see your face every time I look into the flames. The danger I warned you of grows very close now. Thanks so much for joining us for this first installment of our Winds of Winter Primer. We'll be back soon with part two, in which we'll be checking in with the rest of the Starks as they continue their journeys. And now, as always, it's time for us to pay credit where credit is due. Thanks so much to George R.R. Martin for giving us something to look forward to. And thanks to Kevin McLeod and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our production. And we'll end today, as usual, with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. Thanks to the following wonderful people. 
AJ, Alex, Amanda, Amber, Oakenfist, Nessie the Questing Beast, Arion, Biloba, Brian, Camille, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Clarissa, Clay, Convenience or Death, Craig, Crimson Kate, Chris, Sin Bobby Joe, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Direwolf, Dutch, Defender of the Berm, Eric, Emily of the Eerie, Ezra, Felix, Jeffrey, Eric, Greg, History of Westeros, Aiden, Ingville, Jacob, Jamie the Joint Slayer, Brendan B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, Joseph, Judson, Catherine, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Kevin, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Liam, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Matt L., Matthew, Melinda, Mary, Michael M., Patrick, Peter Pebble, Matthew, PJ, Rachel, Richard, Ryan, Sam, Scott, Sebastian, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift, Sherry, Spentrails, That Shiny Bastard, Steve, Tanner, Terry, Sir Terrence, Knight of the Cedars, Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, Yvonne, and Zainab. Thanks once again to all of our patrons, and we'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now.